VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, August the 31st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. David Williams getting settled in as the producer of the program this morning. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone and give us a call to get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 VOCM, which is 86. 26. Well, you don't need me to tell you. Pretty rainy, dreary, dark day. I can't even see Ken Mount Terrace. It's so dark through the windows here in VOCM Valley. Some of the rainfall and the rates of rainfall is going to be pretty treacherous in some parts of the province. Maybe as high as 10 to 15 millimeters per hour, which means millimeters per hour, which means there's going to be some potential flash flooding, people without power. Notably in Cornerbrook, I see some 2,000 people without power in that community as of a few minutes ago. Speaking of Cornerbrook, I want to say good luck, safe travels to the Cornerbrook U18 Barons baseball team heading to PEI for the Atlantics traveling in the iconic blue Barons bus so good luck and go get them quick update for the uh, men's softball fast pitch championships out in Surrey BC after day one the Galway Hitmen the defending champions pair of wins 8-0 over one of the teams from BC 4-2 over a team from Sa- uh, Saskatoon then on the other side NL Physio and Co 0-2 unfortunately dropped one to an Alberta team from Grand Prairie 11-2 6-5 loss at the hands of one of the local host teams the BC to Surrey Rebels. All right, uh, way to go, Abby Newhook. St. John's native Abby Newhook heading into her junior year at Boston College. She's been named one of the co-captains of the team. Uh, Gabby Roy and Abby Newhook will serve as the captains for the 23-24 Boston College women's ice hockey team. Coming off another stellar year, set a career-high 19 goals last year. Six of them were game winners. The team was 14-1-1 when she scores a goal. She was, of course, the rookie of the year in the Hockey East back in 21-22. So, Abby, Don in the sea. Congratulations to her. This strange story. So... Uh, if people know me and my appetite for court sports, I think volleyball is superior to anything else, including basketball. David Williams disagrees vehemently, but I love the volleyball. There's been an attendance record set for women's sports, and it's Nebraska. Best known for football, I would suggest, and their Cornhusker team. But now, apparently, they are huge on volleyball. 92,003 people filled Memorial Stadium to watch the University of Nebraska play against Omaha. There's only 2 million people in Nebraska, and they love the volleyball, apparently. So it beat a record that was once set. There was an unofficial record at a women's soccer game in Mexico where there was potentially around 110,000. But, you know, I guess part of this story is just how many massive stadiums there are, especially on college campuses in the United States. Like there was once the record for... uh, in a football stadium in Michigan where you put in about 100,000 fans to watch a football game. Man, those are massive facilities. Anyway, Nebraska loves the volleyball. Uh, quick one. Yesterday we were talking about uh, the Battle of the Sexes. Billie Jean King uh, beating Bobby Riggs back in 1973. It was on this date in 1979. It was the Battle of American Teenagers at the U.S. Open. 16-year-old Tracy Austin beat 14-year-old Andrea Yeager, 6-2, 6-2 in the second round of the Open. Tracy Austin went on to win the U.S. Open. She won it twice. She won again in 1981. Two, uh, 16 years old remains the youngest champion of a Grand Slam ever. 16 years old, winning at the U.S. Open. Amazing stuff. And, and quickly, this is a really strange one. I, you know, I love to sit down and watch a bit of sports as a bit of an escape. And I'm frustrated, like mo- most sports fans, just about the prevalence and the frequency of the betting updates and the betting ads. 
in Ontario. The Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario has now said active and retired athletes will be banned from appearing in commercial promoting online gambling in Ontario as of the 28th of February. Hard to believe this is going to pass a judicial smell test, but when you see folks like Austin Matthews and Connor McDavid and Wayne Gretzky on these ads, I mean, these are some pretty rich dudes. It's a wonder why they were lured into being part of the gambling world in sports, but anyway, there we go. And speaking of money and sports, there was a record set in 1987 by Curtis Strange for a career, pardon me, for a single year earnings on the PGA Tour, $925,000 that year. Won three times, including the U.S. Open. This year, Scotty Scheffler, American, won over $21 million. At the Tour Championship, in conjunction with winning the FedEx Cup this past weekend, Victor Hovland got a check for $18 million. In 1987, if you won $925,000, you had the most successful day ever in golf. Wow. Okay, let's get back to more important stuff, I suppose. Today is International Overdose Awareness Day across the globe. You know, when we see the numbers here, and there's all sorts of controversy about what we could or should be doing about it, and we do know, and we had a call last week from a fellow who was originally from this province, Juan O'Quinn. He's a lawyer in British Columbia, talking about what he sees in that province. The overdose numbers are staggering. July marked the 13th consecutive month where more than 190 residents died due to toxic drugs. Just think about it. So... When we look at the data, the death toll in the first seven months of this year in that province is 1,455. Now, there's a population of about 5 million in B.C., but we've seen it in many times in the past. Whether it be social media trends and fads or frisbees or whatever, it makes its way from west to east in this country for the vast majority of the conversations we have. So we know it's bad here. But just consider how bad it is there. They're on pace to uh, have about 2,300 people die from toxic drugs in that province. Since they declared it an actual health crisis back in 2016, almost 13,000 people in B.C. have died from drugs. The question then becomes, I mean, how do we have the conversation? It stalls out, you know, just look at what happened when the federal liberal government uh, legalized cannabis products. You know, there was a pretty big uproar in some parts of the country. Now, it didn't lead to some of these scourges that people predicted, whether it be more and more youth picking up the habit, which hasn't happened. In fact, the demographic that's seen the largest uptick in cannabis use have been seniors. There was worries about uh, driving while intoxicated with a THC or a cannabis product. That hasn't necessarily happened, and it was always illegal before the uh, legalization of the, pro- the, of the drug itself. So what do we do? You know, there is BC, they've taken up the charge with trying to do something about it, whether it be with decriminalization of very small amounts of illicit drugs, which is controversial for many, many, many. Then there's safe injection sites talking about regulating the supply. Is the country ready for a conversation about how we change the channel on this one? Because we've been doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. And what's happened? Things just got worse. So... I don't pretend to have all the solutions, but I know that just repeating errors of the past is not going to see any more citizens protected. It's going to see an increase in overdose-related deaths. And then there's news stories today about, here we go, back to school, right? So some of the traumatic conversations that we need to have, whether it be about sex, drugs, rock and roll, in many families, they handle it different ways. Some families, I would suggest, probably don't talk about it at all. Just try to ignore it and hoping that it never enters into your child's realm and in their social circle of friends. But having an honest conversation about it has got to be part of it. The cocaine supply, for instance, a number of years ago, was not going to be one line, you're dead. 
but now it's possible. It just is. The fentanyl is lethal. It can drop you where you stand in one very small uh, intake of that particular drug. So what do we do? Again, we've got to have the conversation because we see the stories and we hear the family grieve about the loss of a loved one. And you don't have to be a hardcore addict to find yourself with the potential of an overdose. And in fact, those who don't use very often or infrequently, they're probably more subject to dangerous reactions and or overdose deaths because they don't have any tolerance built up, right? So it's International Overdose Awareness Day. Let's take it on. And of course, the drug issue has a direct relation with the amount of crime we're seeing. Today in the news, there's two stories about guns, weapons-related charges, gun thefts. We know we see more and more guns, more and more gun seizures in this province than ever before. So if, even if you think that, you know, the addicts, that's their own fault, too bad about them, it has an issue regarding your own safety where you live. I mean, how many break-ins, how many of these weapons-related uh, crimes are, have some sort of relation and or direct relation with drugs? So anyway, I want to take it on. Let's go. There's a story out there today. Look, people are desperate looking for a place to live. The rental rates, and there's a big conversation to be had, but when folks are desperate, they're much more likely to drop their guard. There's rental scams everywhere you look. That old Facebook marketplace looks like nothing but a scam. So when you're looking and you've been looking and looking and looking and you see a space, well, that's kind of where I want to live. That's the kind of unit I need. They ask you for a deposit to put the place on hold so you can come see it and the money's gone. So it's becoming more prevalent than ever, just like every scam out there. But the rental scam seems to be growing. So just a warning for those of you out there looking and fingers crossed you find yourself a place. All right. The Speed Camera Pilot Project. There's no problem. Wherever you're living in the province here today, listen to this program. You go out for a drive or go to the store or go to the doctor, whatever the case may be, you'll see someone screaming around like a bat out of hell. So the Speed Camera Program or the Pilot Project that was out of Mount Pearl and Paradise, it would be nice to know just how many of the warnings were offered. But an interesting question being uh, asked by one fellow who got a warning is whether or not that warning will eventually turn into a ticket. Because that was part of the project this year is that there would not be a ticket and uh, a required fine for being caught on the camera. But it is legal for law enforcement to do exactly that. And so at this point, if you got a warning, it's not up to the provincial government necessarily to think that maybe a ticket is required here beyond the warning that you get in letter form in your mailbox. So it might happen. So that's a fair question being asked by this guy. Now, there will not be any demerit points associated with your license if you're caught speeding on a camera. And you wonder when they compile the data and they give it a review whether or not it's going to be expanded. And yes, to move it straight into you get a ticket and you get a fine if you're caught on the camera. And it might happen even as a result of this pilot. My hope, and some people say, you know, big brother, get out of my life, get out of my world. You know, stop spying on me at every turn. Speed cameras are a good idea. I know I might be taken a task by some, and so be it. That's the nature of the beast here, right? But if it slows people down and reduces the frequency of accidents, protects folks, maybe reduce uh, collision-related injury and death, bring it on. And you know the issue about, well, I wasn't driving at the time. Well, you loan some in your car, you know, so what do you want to do? You want to take on the speed camera issue? I think it's a good one. Okay. So here we go, less than a week before we're all going back to school. And I say all of us because, of course, married to a teacher. I don't know what the prep looks like for families because it impacts the entire family. You know, sleep schedules, timing it up, and the uh, frantic pace in the morning to get everyone ready to get it out the door, get to work in the school on time. I kind of really, I think, 
helpful and interesting email that I read this morning where this woman says, you know, maybe, just maybe, you should try to encourage uh, a young K-12 to student, regardless of their age, if they are indeed excited to go back to school or not, to call the show to offer those questions and maybe just some encouragement for other young people who are possibly dreading going back. Some young people love going back to school, see their buddies, get back at the books. Some, not so much. So I thought it was an interesting suggestion. So if you are listening to the program this morning and one of your children is close by within earshot and would like to take the time to call in to talk about back to school and maybe some of the questions that they have, not that I have all the answers, but maybe you do. And even just some basic encouragement for don't worry, you know, let's go back to school because the worry and the dread doesn't lead to hitting the ground running when you get back in the classroom. So I thought that was a good one and we can take it on if you're so inclined. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? I got a sore throat here today. All right. Daycare update, of course, related to going back to school. The advocates of the world who are keeping a very close eye on the number of spaces because the government with their announcement really didn't paint a complete picture, in my opinion. You know, saying that there's 8,300 daycare spaces and the move towards creating X number more in the pre-kindergarten. You know, a pre-kindergarten or junior kindergarten fast-paced rollout might be an excellent idea. The research is clear. For four-year-olds, being in that type of setting is much better when we talk about educational outcomes. But if we only have a net increase of 258 spaces between this year and 2021, we're losing spaces almost as quickly as we're gaining spaces. So if you want to take on daycare, let's go. A couple of quickies before we get to your call. Still a lot to understand about Newfoundland Labrador's hyd- Newfoundland Labrador Hydro's forecast of a doubling in demand. And there's some 20 studies that they're entertaining to look at what's next with trying to replace Holyrood and all the different options. One question being asked is, why are we just going with diesel? Why is that the only option? Apparently, when people say, well, how about natural gas? which does indeed decrease emissions, which has got to be entertained because there is a move towards a net zero emissions grid. Apparently, we're told, well, it's simply about a supply issue because we don't have the demand onshore to, I would imagine, see any of the oil producers offshore utilize their gas reserves, but that's a big one. And last one, of course, and this is one of the big stories in the province, and I would think uh, people taking note around the world. Wind, hydrogen to ammonia. Four companies are moving forward. The one that's not being approved, uh, and this is not a green light, this this is not the final say, there's still a lot of work to be done to evaluate who's going to actually produce, you know, use wind-generated electricity, the the electrolysis, hydrogen, ammonia export. So the company's moving forward. Everwind Fuels, Exploits Valley Renewable Energy Corporation, uh, ABO Wind, and of course, World Energy GH2. There was a lot of information offered by the province yesterday, and Minister Parsons will indeed be joining us in the 11 o'clock hour to talk about it. So we can break down exactly the projects, where they are, and the, the size, scope, and scale of them. But let's talk about the, some numbers that were brought forward by the province yesterday about impact on the economy. So we're told, and this is the two-phase assessment that was offered by the province. We'll try to break it down a little further with Minister Parsons later this morning. They say that these four projects, reigning in a lifespan of 35 to 40 years, will represent an estimated $206.2 billion in GDP and $11.7 billion in direct revenue for the province. Peak employment, they forecast, will be around 11,694 full-time equivalent jobs. The total spend, capital spend, on these four projects would add up to $66.3 billion. So those are big numbers. Then inside the world of the number of jobs, 
I would imagine these four companies are already digging in their heels to try to find people that will be involved in the construction phase of these particular projects. So these, these are massive big numbers. Minister Parsons also went on to say that there's global attention being given to it. Curiously, Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland, when she was in the province a couple of days ago, did the tour in Argentia and talk about them being one of the leaders, getting out of the gate to move forward with their hydrogen hopes for export. And of course, they're not on this list. Is that because they don't need Crown Land? Initially, in phase number one, they've got some 6,000 acres that's privately owned by the Port of Argentia, but they're left off. I need some clarification as to why exactly that is. Were they not involved in this particular uh, round of uh, assessment and application? Okay, once Dave just dropped something off to me. Uh, And inside the world of Crown Lands and in the lease, there's 18 months where the land will be put on hold. The companies must pay 3.5% of the market value of the land. So it's a big topic. We had a couple of calls yesterday, people who were opposed to the project proposed on the Port of Port Peninsula by World Energy GH2, but we're happy to take them on. And I know I heard the mayor, Mayor Sevier, out in Botwood, they're elated about the fact that the Exploits Valley project is moving to the next phase. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line Follow, sir. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. And Dave just passed me this. So there's an abandoned car turned around in the westbound lane just before the Paradise Turnoff. That's going to be a problem. So it's abandoned, is it, Dave? I can't hear you. So an abandoned car turned around in the westbound lane just before the Paradise Turnoff on the Outer Ring Road. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin on this morning on line number two. Say good morning to the executive director of the Rua Mental Health and Wellness Counseling Center. That's Amelia O'Day. Good morning, Amelia. You're on the air. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Good morning to you. Um, so I'm just calling in as a response to um, Susan Guiney's phone call on Tuesday. So she had called to advise that her husband, Bill, would be uh, walking the loop starting this Friday at Signal Hill at 6 a.m., nice and early, um, in support of mental health. And so I'm calling as the executive director of RUA Counseling Center. Um, Bill has graciously pledged a third of the proceeds of his walk to our center. And community partnerships are so important. Um, for us to be able to sustain the services that we provide. So we provide individual, couple, and family counseling to anyone who is 16 years of age and older in the community. And we provide these services for people who aren't otherwise able to access them. So whether that's due to certain barriers in the community or finances, um, we always make sure that we can make our services accessible. And of course, one of the things that makes us different is we are a dual service model. So if someone does have health insurance or are able to pay privately, they can also access our services for a competitive rate compared to other private counseling centers in uh, in the city. So I'm just really calling this morning to formally thank Bill and just to spread some more awareness about Bill's Walk for Mental Health, which is starting uh, tomorrow morning, bright and early um, on Signal Hill at 6 a.m. And Rua will be following and sharing um, the information and the updates about his walk throughout the week. What kind of services do you provide at Rua? So we provide a wide range of mental health and wellness services. So counseling in many different areas um, around grief, loss, trauma, mental health, relationships, um, many different areas that people come to seek support for. And we also provide um, a number of psychosocial groups. So um, usually these groups happen in the fall, winter, and spring, and they can be um, anywhere from um, mental health and wellness, anger management, anxiety, emotional regulation, um, self-empowerment, 
lots of different um, groups that you can get involved with in our Centre for Mental Health. So if I was a client of yours, do I have that sort of continuity of care where I see the same counsellor repeatedly? Because that's one of the concerns out there, isn't it? You know, even with walk-in services and or some uh, other types of clinics, is you might see one person and have to recount your trials and tribulations and your state of mind with another counsellor the next time you come. How does it work at RUA? Absolutely. I'm really glad you asked that question. So there is continuity of care. Um, RUA offers a 10-session model for services. So when you come to RUA and you're assigned to a counsellor, you see that same counsellor for up to 10 sessions. When you have finished those 10 sessions, you are also able to... um, If needed, of course, if you're feeling like you need more sessions, you can reapply for another 10 and request to see the same counsellor again. You can also avail of what we call six-month reactivation. So if you try and use the skills and the things you talked with your counsellor about once your session's in, you can actually come back for up to an additional three sessions if you find that you've tried to see how things are going and you're needing a bit of a refresher. So you you are always able to see the same counsellor again as long as you request that what would these counselors look like who are they not by name but are we talking about uh, psychologists or who are the counselors so the counselors are uh, masters prepared professionals generally we have master of social work on staff for counseling so right now we have a full-time master of social work counselor Um, and then we also have two part-time counselors who one is master of social work and one is master of arts and counseling psychology so they will be registered with the affiliated, like the Newfoundland Labrador College of Social Workers and uh, the CCA, CCPA. How does it work in the world of referrals? Because obviously a good service that you're offering, but for some they may need additional types of supports and treatment, whether it be from a psychologist or a psychiatrist. What does referrals look like at RUA? So basically we receive self-referrals from anyone in the community who thinks that they could avail of supportive and therapeutic counseling. And we also receive referrals from a number of community agencies, um, Stella Circle, the Murphy Center, John Howard Society, um, many family physicians, as well as psychologists, psychiatrists within Eastern Health, who are hoping to get their clients in in a more timely manner than maybe the public systems will sometimes allow for. Um, And so we also, when we we work with people who may come to us and realize, you know what, I'm needing more than 10 sessions. I'm actually needing services in a specialized area, for example, tra- complex trauma. The counselors at RUA will work with the client to make appropriate community referrals and make sure that they're connected so that they can continue their counseling journey where you know, where they see fit. When looking at the larger community regarding mental health services, all the stories we hear about the shortage of psychologists, the 99 vacancies of social workers, how do you and your team look at what that means, whether it be with the uptick in clients that you see, whether it be about the larger concerns or questions in the community? I think that one of the things that we've noticed as a pattern is, especially since COVID, I think the demand for mental health and wellness services in the community has certainly increased. I think we're seeing the effects of, um, you know, the various challenges that COVID presented. We're seeing those effects on people in terms of their mental health and wellness. And I think actually there was a lot of attention paid during COVID to just how much it was affecting people. And it's actually increased the conversation about how important it is just to take care of yourself and be aware of the things that you need to do to take care of your mental health. And when we look at a model of care, 
therapeutic counseling, whether it be through a social worker or a psychologist, um, is really important, an important piece of that. And, you know, when you look at someone's treatment plan, it's often that you look at various ways to um, achieve wellness. So you you can um, avail of talk therapy, you can avail of sometimes a medical professional. Um, So I think that the talk therapy piece and especially being able to be connected with someone to talk about and really process what you're going through is an essential part of uh, mental health and wellness, and we're seeing a greater demand in the community for that right now. And I'm glad you're using the, the different references, and I need to do a better job of this, and I think the general public needs probably a better understanding of the difference between mental health, mental wellness, and mental illness, because there are three, albeit similar, overlapped conversations, but they are distinct and different in their own right. So, you know, when we have a better understanding of how to discuss either of the three, we probably come up with better not better outcomes and better understanding, which leads to, you know, probably reduction in stigma, a better, easier conversation to have amongst your family or your social circle of friends or at your company. So there's three similar but different conversations there. Uh, final thought to you, Amelia, before we say goodbye. Well, I just wanted to thank you so much for your time and for listening this morning. And I really just encourage, um, you know, even any um, – services in the community or any businesses or, or you know, people who are able to consider um, learning more about RUA and the services that we provide. And of course, we our services rely on the support of donors and community partners. So if you're looking for, um, you know, somewhere to donate to or to support um, over the next year, just please consider RUA and just have a look at our website, www.ruacounseling, R-U-A-H, and counseling with two L's, dot and uh, consider supporting us because we're doing some pretty important work in the community. I appreciate the time. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Thanks, Amelia. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Amelia O'Day is the Executive Director at Rua Mental Health and Wellness Counseling Centre. Okay, there we go. Let's take a break right on time, as per usual. When we come back, we'll talk about school buses, river guardians, and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the independent member of the House of Assembly, elected in and serving the folks in Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Morning, Paul. You're on the air. Well, thank you, Patty, for having me on. Um, before I get to my topic, I just want to give a shout-out to Mount Pearl's own uh, Jenny Mallard. She's been uh, nominated for three Music NL Awards this year. So uh, just want to wish her the best of luck and uh, let her know that we're all rooting for her here in the Pearl. Congratulations uh, to her. Go get them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, anyway, Patty, uh, the reason why I'm calling <clears throat> relates to a school busing issue in my district, in the, the Southlands portion of my district. And uh, I guess I guess it was the night before last, uh, parents received a letter from the school district about uh, the school, about the uh, busing situation. Uh, in particular, parents who would have children going to Newtown Elementary, which would be grades uh, four, five, and six. Uh, and they were extremely shocked and, uh, and very uh, frustrated uh, when they found out that um, a route that had been established and had been going to Newtown Elementary for the last number of years, which would see their kids on the bus for approximately 20 minutes, you have to bear in mind that um, 
Southlands, if you were to drive uh, from Southlands to Newtown Elementary, depending on whether you got the green lights or the red lights, it would take you anywhere from probably five to seven minutes uh, at top. So, so they're, they're, they're pretty close. And, of course, you know, uh, one of the considerations when, you know, you move in to that area, or, or I guess any area, but like uh, we're talking about this area, is, you know, you're looking to be close to uh, amenities, schools, sports, churches, grocery stores, whatever the case might be. And that's a big consideration when you're moving into these areas. So, you know, you have people moved in there. They're paying high taxes uh, to, uh, to the municipality certainly and they're paying a lot of provincial taxes they're all working people of course and you move in and you're here next to a school that's like i said five to seven minute drive away you had a bus route that was about 20 minutes now they find out that's going to be doubled and now you have these young kids that are going to be stuck on the bus for 40 minutes every morning and every afternoon uh, because of a change in the route by the school district now the school district would say that based on their standards or their policies, whatever you want to call them, and it would it, it would be true that they that it's acceptable to be on the bus up to an hour, uh, up to sixty minutes, which I find ridiculous. But I guess that that was put in place based on the fact that you may have parts of the province where you know where you you might have a child here or there in a small community that may be isolated from the regional centers or the hub or whatever and there's no you know there's no physical school um close enough and there's not enough kids to justify a school and that's an unfortunate situation but when you're here in a and i'm not trying to pit rural against the urban here but when you're in a metro area you're you know you're a stone's throw from the school so to speak and now you're going to be stuck on a bus for 40 minutes each way small kids uh, I think that that's unacceptable. The parents certainly do, and they've asked me to certainly speak out on their behalf, and uh, I'm doing that and contacting the minister, the school board, and so on to see if we can get some uh, changes made. Why the but, change? Uh, what happened? Happy parents over on Southlands this morning, I can tell you. you know, I, I know full well, and I guarantee you my email inbox will very quickly reflect a come on but with parents from parts of rural Newfoundland that that's the, that's the norm, not the exception. What changed uh, to lead to this alteration of route? From what I can gather, Patty, it's, it's simply a numbers game uh, and a capacity situation. That's what I can gather. Like, Basically, what it comes down to is last year, this uh, the buses that were servicing Newtown Elementary last year, uh, there were six buses. This year, we've got five buses. So I guess what it comes down to is that if there was, let's say, if you can fit 70 kids on a bus, then maybe last year, let's say for argument's sake, there was 360 kids which meant that that was five full buses and 10 kids left over. So you end up with six buses that gave you capacity. So from the perspective of neighborhoods, you could go and service different neighborhoods and the buses wouldn't be totally full. And that's where you get your courtesy seats. But this year, I guess the numbers worked out in a way that you can literally fill those five buses. Now there's no capacity, I guess there's no courtesy seats, but in order to fill those buses totally to capacity, that means in the case of Southlands, before they would just go and pick up all the kids in Southlands, drive straight down Southlands Boulevard and um, Richard Nolan Drive and turn on the Jacqueline Drive right into the school. 
Now when they go down um, Southlands Boulevard, Richard Nolan, and instead of going straight down um, Richard Nolan into uh, into the school, they're turning left onto um, onto Old Potential Road, and then they're driving up and picking up kids up behind the glacier, which would have been its own route last year. So what they're doing is they're combining neighborhoods. By doing that, now you have a 20-minute run in Southlands combined with another 20-minute run up around the glacier area, which means a 40-minute run, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I do. I, I wonder what the impact of doing away with the 1.6-kilometre arbitrary distance from school as it pertains to getting a seat on the bus, what that might mean for some altered routes and maybe some for some longer treks from your bus stop to the school. I would imagine there's a variety of schools and parents are finding out pretty late in the day exactly what's happening with their child's opportunity to get on a school bus. So I suppose we should dig a little further into that because I doubt this is the one lone route that's been impacted in some form because when you... When you're going to be picking up more children, maybe as many as 4,000 additional children just this school year alone, just in and around here, there's going to be some complications with the time traveled. Uh, I appreciate the time, Paul. Anything else before we say goodbye? No, Petty, like I say, that's, uh, that's it. Uh, I will say, though, that um, this whole idea of, uh, of getting rid of the 1.6, to the best of my knowledge, the only school in this region, in this area, that will be uh, going, that, that, that a program will be applying to about inside the 1.6 would be Mary Queen of the World. So all the schools in the Mount Pearl, Southlands area, that, that, that new policy of picking up kids within the 1.6 zone, my, to my knowledge, that doesn't start till next year. So that shouldn't have anything to do with this situation. This just has, some, this just has to do with, from what I can gather, Simple math where we're saying we can we can manage to jam all the kids onto five buses. Uh, we don't need the sixth bus, but in doing so, uh, now you're combining neighborhoods, and then that's causing all these. Um, you know, in this case, it's causing the ride on the bus now to double for for these particular children. So. If they went back to the six bosses they had all along, they could divide it up like they had before, and everybody would be happy. Everyone, all the routes would be 15 to 20 minutes or whatever, which is long enough for small children, um, and and all would be fine. So that's what I'm asking for. Okay. You know, whether they'll do it right now, they're saying they're not going to do it, but um, maybe if the uh, parents and everyone put enough pressure on, maybe they'll take another look at it and... I guess that's why I'm calling today, because they're my constituents, and uh, I have to advocate for them, of course. Thanks for the time, Paul. Thank you, Paddy. All the very best. You too. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. Uh, Let's go to line number three. Barry, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. Paddy, talking about the uh, fishery guardians again this morning. Uh, Here we are in the 11th hour, 11th and a half hour, and still no word. Patty, uh, we've been talking about this now for quite a while, and uh, I got a word through the grapevine. Listen to this. Uh, still no word on extensions. If they happen, it will be for the lower Humber only. No enforcement between Rocky Harbor and Castor River, and they're going to be la- they may be laid off on August 31st, which should be a full week before the season closes. 
The River Guardians, just so people are aware, these are not people who are staff of DFO. This is a private contract that's left by the federal government. Last year it was $5 million at the beginning of the season. There was some adjustment made uh, last year, which probably cost us somewhat more than the $5 million. But I think when they made the adjustment last year, acknowledged that they were coming up short. So whether it be about the number of Guardians and how many rivers and uh, kilometers they have to cover, whether it be the length of time the Guardians are on the river. So I think they've acknowledged that it is less than ideal, but we don't even know what the plan is this year, which is, just seems to be status quo when we talk about so many fishery-related matters, whether it be the wild fishery, commercial fishery, salmon anglers, everything under the sun. I just don't know why they don't give us the, the details, even if it's not what people want to hear, because I guarantee you they already know what the plan is. Absolutely, Patty, absolutely, and I guarantee you they do know what the plan is, and I don't see why, we, why we're being kept in the dark. If this was out in British Columbia, I guarantee you they wouldn't settle for it. Well, no, I mean, there's a different approach to every fishery-related matter on the west coast of the country versus the east coast. And, Patty, the, the, when Justin Trudeau became prime minister, he gave a directive, in, in my understanding, he gave a directive to the uh, minister of the DFO to, uh, to look after or put in, uh, policies and implementations into the uh, Fishery Guardian program in Newfoundland and Labrador to look after the wild, or, I'm sorry, to look after the wild Atlantic salmon. And this is one integral part of it that, that uh, looks after the poaching factor of it. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot to these conversations. Uh, but I guess the ultimate for me is that I just don't know why there's always such an extensive delay in just telling us what's happening. I, you know, again, communication is a tricky piece of business. But when people get answers, even if it's not what they want to hear, they've got the details they can deal with. As opposed to just every time, human nature, worst case scenario is the first thing we all think of when we don't get an answer, when there's deafening silence to any of these questions. Yes, and, you know... This this uh, extra time now for the uh, fishery guardians, if they're if they're given it this year and last year, they did they did DFO did extend it they extended by four weeks and uh, kept half the man. Uh, we were hoping that this 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 year came around that they would have the plan in place already sure. mm-hmm. to have uh, to have all of the fishery guardians on for an extra up to possibly eight weeks. And they had a full year to uh, implement this now, Patty, and come up with it. And as well, we've been lobbying for this before, before this year and last year anyway. As many people have, I have a number of River Guardians email me all the time about this matter. And it's important because we all know what happens when the cat is away, the mice will play, there's poachers who are willing to take it on while the Guardians are employed, but they all know what the schedule is. And when the Guardians are no longer part of the equation, out come the nets. And, and that's and that's you know and I'm not saying we're not saying that everybody's a poacher, Patty. No, no, nobody said that. Is, right? I know, I know, I understand, sir. I'm just saying, saying from our point of view. And uh, but there is a there is a factor to, to that poaching is a factor. And you know, it'd be different if we were just looking at saying, ah, oh, what the heck with it, or give us more tags. But we're not. We're looking after the conservation of for. And what's our agenda? As I always say, Patty, our agenda is for our grandkids in the future. Because how are, they, how are you going to answer? How will we answer our kids when they say, ask us, Grandma, Granddad, how come I can't go salmon fishing like you did? And the answer is because we didn't do anything about it when we had the chance to do it. 100%. I appreciate the time, Barry. Patty, as, as well now, the, uh, the, from my, since I started this, I'm hearing some echoings in the, uh, about it. And some of the equipment is, is so obsolete. Some of the equipment, they can't even use some of the equipment. You can't even get a boat sometimes to use. To, to uh, do patrols. 
Fair ball. Well, I mean, equipment-related matters as it pertains to the fishery, whether it be for the gathering of scientific data or these types of matters, we're certainly coming up short. Very short, Patty, very short. And, uh, you know, once again, it, it's uh, laid right at the doorsteps of DFO, right at the doorsteps of the minister, right at the doorsteps of DFO here in St. John's, Newfoundland, and Labrador, and, every, and everywhere in between. It's unacceptable, and I don't see why it has to be like this. And I don't see why it's because of the prime minister gave that mandate to the, the DFO minister to put it to look after the uh, wildlife salmon that, you know, we're, we're having such difficulties. And it seems like, we, you know, we've got to go crawling and knock at the door, with begging at the door to get something done by DFO. It's uh, completely unacceptable. Appreciate the time, Barry. I'm off to the break. Thank you very much, Patty. It's always been a pleasure. My pleasure, sir. Take care. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and take that break. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you. And, of course, there's going to be lots of questions posed by a variety of members of the community, certainly in areas where the four companies have their wind to hydrogen to ammonia projects moving forward into the next stage. No green lights have been offered at this moment. When I said Minister Parsons was coming on at the 11 o'clock hour, of course, that's the encouragement for you to get in before the minister comes on to pose some questions that I can reiterate to him when we get a chance to speak with him. Or you can do that via email or Twitter or whatever you see fit. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's roll. Line number two. Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Gailey. How are you this morning? Not bad, I suppose. How you doing? Pretty good, thanks. I want to talk about a story that was in the New Yorker magazine. Uh, August 21st, it was published and uh, written by Ronan Farrow. The fellow who made his bones in the Harvey Weinstein story. Yep. That's right. Yep. He wrote a story about Elon Musk. It's quite a lengthy article. There's a lot in there, but I'll just try to get two or three main points here. Sure. It's, it's about Musk and his uh, his effect on the war in Ukraine, the Russia war, uh, Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, when the war started in uh, February of 2022, uh, Musk was an ardent supporter of Ukraine and uh, defending Ukraine. And he sent in, uh, through his company, uh, Starlink, uh, vital communications uh, uh, services and equipment to Ukraine to help them in the war. Uh, this would give their uh, field units uh, mobile internet access mm-hmm. to commanders. Yep. To, to, you know, to, for logistics purposes and, and communications and stuff. And uh, initially, you know, that sounded pretty good. And obviously, it is it was altruistic, and uh, he wanted to help. Uh, Ukraine defend against the invasion, but uh, as it's dragged on now, we're a year and a half into this war. Um, Musk is um, kind of uh, having a change of mind on on, on this issue, and uh, Starlink uh, and his uh, initial endeavor there is starting to lose a lot of money. Uh, he has to subsidize this uh, communications, fast communications uh, network that he set up in Ukraine to help Ukraine fight the war. So what, what has happened now, what, what started off as a initially, uh, you know, a, a very commendable um, move by Musk uh, on its face, has turned into the U.S. government uh, has had to uh, engage in negotiations with him and eventually ink a, a contract with him to continue to supply communication services to Ukrainian troops. Uh, if not, he was going to pull the plug. 
Well, it's reflective of what modern-day warfare really looks like, too, isn't it? So when the hotly contested portions of the south of Ukraine, where that's where the battles were ramping up, there was communications blackouts. Ukrainians didn't know where anybody else was. There was a real chaotic issue, and it was all directly related to the absence of Starlink as per the initial promise from Moscow and his group. So... You know, it's it's a mad world out there when we talk about tech. Like, number one, tech's not your friend. They're just not. And, you know, people will bemoan Bill C-18 and all that stuff. You can't share Canadian media content on Facebook and Instagram and what have you. But at some point, I think we're going to have to wrap our mind around how governments are going to have to look at these tech companies who hold so many of the cards here. You know, we rely on communications for everything that you can possibly think of, but they really have their thumb on the scale. And I don't need government to regulate everything under the sun, but governments move at a snail's pace. Technology and innovation is moving at breakneck speed, and there's a massive disconnect between the two. Imagine having a rain in the tech guys, which we are. All governments around the world are having to do it. Yeah, it's 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 quite uh, it's quite interesting on the Ukraine Russia war file with him, is that uh, not only has he done what I just said, you know, that he's done and he's in a uh, has a contract now with the U.S. Defense Department, yeah. but he's engaged in uh, direct talks with Putin apparently about ending the war in Ukraine, and he's proposing on Twitter and other platforms that he owns, you know about redrawing the map of Ukraine and ceding control of uh, the Crimean Peninsula to uh, Putin. Yeah, the appeasement plan, as per Elon Musk, yeah. Yeah, 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 it's, uh, it's uh, Neville Chamberlain 2.0, you know? And um, he's an American citizen. He's also a Canadian, too, by the way. Yeah. And uh, what, what, what you have here is a private citizen. Uh, obviously, he's the wealthiest person in the world. He's worth between 200 and 300 billion dollars by some estimates. But what you have is a, is a, 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 a the only way I can term it is a shadow government within the United States. You have a single individual, you know, a, a non-sovereign entity uh, negotiating with a head of state in a, in a war, uh, an illegal war, by the way, a, a war criminal, Putin. Uh, and he's acting, he's acting like alongside the U.S. government. He's like the U.S. government State Department. Yeah, and he's the, he's the U.S. government's Department of Defense. He's like a quasi government. Yeah, Dennis and, and Rodman so- visits North Korea. Um, so the whole concept of the geofencing is, you know, it's hard to stop a company like Musk's and the variety of companies that he owns and holds from doing as they see fit outside of jurisdiction, like, say, for instance, inside the United States, where you have all sorts of uh, labor codes and rules and r- laws and legislation. But what do you actually do here? You know, who can actually rein him in and what does rein him in look like? Yeah, he doesn't. Have, obviously, he doesn't have political power, but because no. of his enormous wealth, you know, he, he can he has a network of contacts. He can, he he and his top people. They can contact Vladimir Putin. You and I can't do that. Nope. And he can he can influence the outcome of that war. He's he's uh, you know he's a he's a direct uh, uh, challenge to American foreign policy, and, and not only uh, American foreign policy but NATO and our foreign policy too. And uh, you know it's not just in in with the Starlink and then the uh, Ukraine Russian war. It's uh, he's com- other companies like uh, SpaceX. He has exclusive control over NASA getting uh, its astronauts to the space station for at least the next year, according to this article by Farrow. SpaceX is the only uh, uh, con- conduit or avenue of, of travel 
for uh, for those uh, NASA astronauts to get to the space station and back through SpaceX. You know, it's, yeah. it's like he's creating these monopolies and he's he's um, putting the U.S. government um, on its heels. And it's the same with all these charging stations uh, uh, along American highways. Now you know everybody's going electric, electric vehicles, and that's great. But he owns Tesla, and he's got a uh, proprietary standard for charging stations in the United States that uh, you got to go through him to, to charge up. So he's creating these monopolies. It's like, is there any uh, antitrust legislation going to be brought in to control him? I don't know. An interesting part of the, this story is the relationship he has with General Milley. You know, I mean, in some aspects, he does have government at his mercy. But when, you know, there's actual formal conversations and advice exchanged between the Joint Chiefs, the head of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and Elon Musk, it's just a bizarre world. Yeah, he doesn't have a security clearance. No. I mean, the, the, chief, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, he has the top secret security clearance, I guess. He, he's the top military leader, uh, advisor to the president of the United States. So you're discussing information with Musk. Is is this classified information? Is it top secret? Is uh, the Musk, in Musk's mind, is he like Donald Trump? Is he uh, mouth like a sieve? He's just going to shoot off his face at a dinner party? That uh, he had a conversation with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and this is what's going to happen in Ukraine, and this is what's this is what's going on in Taiwan Strait, you know, and my company is involved in in this now with the Defense Department, you know, he is a private citizen, right? Yes, who and the conversation around security clearance shouldn't be part of that same paragraph or sentence. I uh, appreciate the time, Colin. I got to get a break here for the newscast. Cheers. Take care. Bye bye. Bye now. It's all really quite weird, isn't it? And I don't know what people think of what has happened or the changes implemented. Uh, if you are indeed a Twitter user or X, as I guess it's being referred to at this moment, seems to be, seems to me that he's made a bit of a hash of it. Uh, I don't know what your experience is with the change of the interface and the content and the spam and the ads and all the rest of it. But anyway, it's really quite odd. Of course, here we are heading into the Labor Day weekend. There will be lots of Labor Day celebrations and activities and events. Ron Smith, he's the chair of the Grand Falls Windsor Labor Day Committee. We're going to tell, talk about what's on tap out on that part of Central, and then we're going to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, say good morning to the chair of the Grand Falls Windsor Labor Day Committee. That's Ron Smith. Good morning, Ron. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? You run a great show there. Feeling okay. Yeah, I wanted to call and uh, mention it's that time of the year again, and Grand Falls Windsor has put together this year a great, uh, a great Labor Day committee, and um, and we'll we'll be uh, we will be running a Labor Day parade again uh, this year, uh, of course on on the fourth, which is Labor Day. And uh, we're inviting uh, we're inviting people who uh, wish to to uh, enter floats in the parade, decorate their side by sides uh, bikes as uh, as floats, and put those in. And, and former mill workers who wish to walk in in the parade with us to join us. We've been at this now over a hundred years. We still believe in celebrating unions and what unions do, and celebrating workers. Uh, union and non-union makes no difference. Labor Day is for workers, period, Patty. Absolutely. Do you have a direct relation at any time in your professional past with the organized labor movement? 
Uh, yeah, I was uh, I was national representative for uh, for mill workers in Cornerbrook and Grand Falls at one point in time, and the loggers. And I was also a representative for the telephone workers in Newfoundland, and I organized the two offshore oil platforms. Do you think the labor movement has changed dramatically? It kind of feels like it has. It has changed dramatically. What it's doing, it's it's responding very much uh, uh, to the times. A lot of lot of uh, calls on, on unions today is on social programs, housing programs. Uh, your role, role of unions, I think, is bigger in your your day-to-day life than it it ever was. People always thought about unions as an organization that sort of looked out to your wages and tried to improve your wages, but it's it's much larger than that, and it's changing as, as our society changes around us. You know, whether or not anybody is pro or anti-organized labor or unions or what have you, some of the benefits uh, remain today, whether it be five-day work week, eight-hour work day, safe workplaces, guaranteed vacation and uh, pensions and the like. So there's been a lot of upside, regardless of where people come down on the union movement over the uh, the decades here in this country. So what else is going on out there in Grand Falls, Windsor, out on top of the parade? Anything? The... Um well, what we're going to have, we'll have the parade in the mornings, and then in the afternoon, uh, the town town uh, will set up uh, an afternoon in the uh, in the park, Church Road Park, with live entertainment, and bouncy castle for kids, things like that, free uh, free barbecues. There will be uh, live entertainment at the Canadian Legion and some promotion for participants in the parade, as well as at, uh, at Kelly's Pub. So the whole the whole the celebration will carry on the whole afternoon. Well, I wish you and uh, the folks who are involved with your Labor Day committee a great long weekend. And uh, everyone else out there in any community, if you want to talk about Labor Day, whether it be from the union angle and or celebration in their community, we're happy to take it on here on the show this morning, Ron. Well, that's that's great. And what we're really doing, I guess, is celebrating what we have and remembering those that bought it to us over the years. As I said, we're over 100 years at this now. And uh, and it's all about celebrating workers and, and what they contribute to our society. I appreciate the time this morning, Ron. Have a great weekend. Okay, buddy. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Ron Smith. He's the chair of the Grand Falls Windsor Labor Day Committee. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to Anna Moulton. She's the Harm Reduction Outreach with SWAP. Good morning, Anna. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Happy to do it. Now, I'm familiar with SWAP, but maybe all the listeners are not. So who and what is SWAP? Fair. So SWAP is the province's harm reduction needle distribution site. Um, We support people who use drugs and something that's becoming more and more important in our roles is naloxone, getting kits out to the public and training. Okay. I'm sorry. Keep going. I was going to say, so today is International Overdose Awareness Day, which is, I think, is hitting the province extremely differently this year um, with the increase in overdose deaths. And this day is really, really important because we want to raise awareness and reduce the stigma of drug-related deaths. 
And there still is a massive stigma. Off the top of the show this morning, I talked about the numbers we see in British Columbia, and they're staggering. 13 consecutive months where 190 residents at least have died because of the toxic drug supply. Naloxone is an interesting conversation because there are people out there who are requesting that there be more done for not only the injectable naloxone, but the nasal naloxone variety, which I don't know if it's as effective, but I mean, it seems like it would be easier to administer and to use, but there's some questions about effectiveness. What do we know about it? There's definitely pros and cons to both. Um, It's definitely a little bit more straightforward, a nasal spray in comparison to an injectable naloxone. Uh, Currently, what we have available is the injectable naloxone kit, so folks can contact us at SWAP or call 811 to get free injectable naloxone kits. We're also uh, super happy and comfortable with training folks on how to use these kits. There's, you know, there's been some uh, groups and parts of, for instance, here in the city of St. John's, the crowd down at the Newfoundland Embassy, a pub there on uh, uh, Nugauer, they've, you know, rallied support of about another 25 pubs for having them on hand. I mean, that fellow at the Newfoundland Embassy, he came upon a dead body, and that, that person died as a result of fentanyl-laced cocaine, as, as we're told, anyway. So the whole conversation about harm reduction, it gets muddled and muddied sometimes, doesn't it? Because harm reduction policies are not only effective, but they're smart. And in some parts of the country, maybe what's happened here is we've not talked about the policy of harm reduction. We talk about the politics of harm reduction, which really derails the conversation. Yeah, fair enough. And I agree with you about harm reduction. Really, what we're trying to do is keep people alive long enough so people can seek other support. But nobody should die from using drugs. That's just... That's not how it should be. And definitely some policy changes need to be reconsidered all, all, all over the world, all over the uh, country. So what does effective harm reduction policy look like beyond treatment after the fact when you've experienced an overdose and use uh, naloxone? So what other harm reduction policies would be beneficial in your opinion? So we um, are lucky to work pretty closely with the Minister of Health, our executive director does. So the support from government is extremely, extremely important. Um, Otherwise, looking on the mainland, we're seeing safe supply programs, we're seeing increase in drug testing, and in BC and in other provinces, we're seeing these um, policies having like positive effects in saving lives. So I think really uh, looking toward other provinces and seeing what is effective for them, that's really what we need to do. Yeah, you know, like BC, because they experienced the most overdose deaths, have done more and had more public conversation and actually declared it a public health crisis. Then, you know, again, here's an example of how it gets muddied in the politics of the issue, is when they talk about safe supply or they talk about hydromorphone. And, you know, people say, well, if you have these safe injection sites and you get the drugs, people take them away and sell them on the street, which just belies the fact that you can actually have people take their treatment in front of the healthcare professional, as opposed to put it in their pocket, take it out and sell it on the street. So we've just kind of got to sift through political ideology because the drugs don't care if you're a conservative or an NDP or a liberal, the, your parents won't care if, in fact, they are on the other side of the political spectrum and a loved one belonged to them dies. So we've just got to get it down to the health care versus a strict focus on criminal justice because I'm almost sick of saying it, but in the envelope of criminal justice and drugs and drug usage and punishment for people uh, peddling drugs, 
it hasn't worked. It feels good to see people behind bars, and if you break the law, that's exactly where you belong. But we are just repeating the same old habits, the same old policies, same old criminal justice approach, and what's happening? More drugs than ever, more gangsters than ever involved in the drug trade, more people using drugs, more people dying from drugs. Seems to me it's not working. Yes, exactly. And the reality is that when we're losing lives, um, while we can focus on treatment and what all these other things, we need to meet people where they're at and figure out these different options that will keep them alive. So if providing safe supplies, the difference between an individual knowing what they're using in comparison to potentially using a drug with opioids in it and overdosing, it just, when you really break down the conversations and like you said, look at it from a healthcare perspective, I think it becomes really clear that we need to um, make some considerations to safe supply, like you said. I appreciate the time this morning, Anna. Would you like to say anything else? Um, so today, like I said, is International Overdose Awareness Day. At 2 p.m., we're going to be at the YC- YMCA on Ridge Road. We have kits and naloxone kits and training available. We're also having an event tonight at the Lantern on Burns Road at 6 o'clock. So... The public is welcome to come to either of those events, access naloxone kits. Otherwise, folks can call 811 or contact the SafeWorks Access Program for free naloxone kits. Appreciate the time this morning, Anna. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. As a harm reduction outreach uh, worker at Swap and a Molten, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to hitch a ride. What's that all about? Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's continue and go to line number two. Good morning, Michael Taylor. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Mike Taylor with Hitch Ride Newfoundland. How are you, sir? Doing okay. How about you? Not too bad, thanks. I um, just want to take a minute of your, your time this morning because, uh, as we know, there's been a lot of talk about ride sharing in the province uh, over the last year and that, and uh, another summer kind of gone by and a lot of frustrated bar owners and hotel managers and that. And so um, we've just been approved to offer insurance um, to drivers for our ride sharing technology. And um, while we can't do it in St. John's right now, it is something that we can offer outside the city. And so we are looking at um, interviewing and screening drivers in Central and uh, out towards the West Coast as well. So tell us exactly what Hitch Ride is, because it's not necessarily Uber or Lyft or some of those mm-hmm. more familiar applications. What exactly do you do? Yeah, it, it is. Um, it's a transportation network company, um, similar to other ones um, all around the world and that as well. So um, it's where, um, you know, a driver um, picks up a, a passenger that's also on the platform. They've put in the, their destination on where they want to go to. Uh, the driver picks them up where they're going, drops them off. There's no cash exchanged. Um, it's all done through a credit card. And that's it. It's supposed to be simple and easy that way. Uh, like when I'm on the mainland, I use Uber all the time. So mm-hmm. what has, just so I'm clear, you are on able to operate inside the city of St. John's because there's got to be amendments made to taxi bylaws and those those types of things. But how are you allowed to operate elsewhere? Because is there not concerns with how the rules are applied, whether it be insurance or otherwise, to applications like yours? No, and so I, but the um, insurance superintendent had approved uh, what's called an SPF 09 um, coverage earlier this year in that. And then that allowed us to then go to market and find um, people. And there's only actually one insurance company that will cover uh, ride sharing in the province and that. And so, you know, with St. John's, um, I had met with Mayor Breen um, back in May. 
And it's my understanding uh, that they are looking at making amendments to the bylaw this fall or later this winter in that. And so we want to be respectful of the city in that, too. We know the highest demand is in the city, um, but at the same time, it's not something we want to um, kind of go against. We want to work with the city in making sure this is done properly and benefits everyone involved. What's the status of your application and the numbers of people working for you at this status? Do you have a fleet? Of drivers, we don't have a fleet of drivers because we're we're offering a technology for drivers to use in that, and so you know they have to go through a, a pretty rigorous screening process. There are background checks um, that need to be in place and vulnerable sector checks as well too. In that, um, their cars, you know, have to be five years um, or newer um, on that as well too, and winter tires, and so um, a lot of the same safety protocols um, that you see with other popular ride sharing um, applications as well. So you know. For us right now, it's sort of a soft launch, I guess, outside of the city in that, and it gives us a chance to build on that while the city is amending their uh, their own taxi bylaw. Do you get lumped into the same insurance coverage that taxis and limousines will have? A th- I think it's called faculty insurance. It's high. Yeah, there, there, there's no doubt about it. It's high, and it's it's actually something. Um, you know, with our insurance, um, drivers can take it on even for six months. And and to be completely blunt, I, I think it's going to be worrisome because we all know January, February, and March are not extremely busy times um, for a lot of businesses and that. And so I, I, I do wonder if a lot of drivers will just say, you know what, I'm going to drive June through uh, December 31st. And that'll be, you know, that's when they will make the most money, no doubt about it. Um, but, you know, it's something I'm hoping that we'll be able to continue working with the insurance companies and, you know, for good drivers, that they should be rewarded and, and have their insurance lowered and that as well, too. So I, that'll be an ongoing battle. But right now, I think just, you know, like everybody else, it's, it's high insurance. We don't have um, um, a cap on tissue injuries here in uh, the province. And so that's always going to be a problem with insurance rates for all of us, whether you're ride sharing or anything, it's just, it's higher here. And so, um, you know, if, if that'll change in the future, I don't know, one battle at a time. Well, that was not so long ago, uh, dealt with at the PUB level and all the interveners on both sides of the conversation. Uh, what, do, I mean, for insurance, look, I understand that the hours of time that you're behind the wheel and the kilometers travel increase the likelihood of some type of collision. So yeah, I get it. But it does seem more fair that you should be uh, judged and uh, evaluated and the premiums based on your driver's abstract. I mean, you can be out there driving all the time and never get into an accident. You could be going from my house to uh, uh, the Sobeys and have an accident, you know, first time behind the wheel. So it's just a little bit unfair in the driver's abstract world. How does revenue sharing work between your app and the driver's? Um, so for us, you know, we want to be lower than the other companies. Um, other companies are typically between 20 and 25 percent of a fare. Um, we're starting out at 13 percent. We want to make this something that um, drivers can make a living. This is almost like starting your own business um, if you have your car in that. And 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 I should also mention it's it's not for gig workers. You can't just um, because of the high insurance rates. You can't do this for a couple hours a day. You know, you you probably want to be at it for a good seven hours a day, eight hours a day in that. And also. Um, back to your point there on, on restricted for driving, um, we're limited really to eight hours a day um, for drivers as well, too, as part of our uh, transportation network company coverage. And so drivers can't be out on the road for 12 hours a day. How does insurance work elsewhere? And this is a question based out of ignorance. So if I'm an Uber driver in Toronto, I can be working full time and just to help uh, bring some more uh, revenue in, I can Uber drive maybe on Friday night and no other time. So how does it work elsewhere? 
I, I well, one, you've got lower insurance rates for sure. That's going to be the first thing um, that they've got on the mainland that we we don't have here. I, I don't know what they are in Toronto compared to Halifax, compared to Prince Edward Island, because there's, I, I guess, you know, there's more drivers in all of those areas or less drivers in some of those areas. So, yeah, I can't really comment um, on the price for that. I just know that we are the highest for insurance, uh, for taxis and for ride sharing um, here in the province. Yeah, and I'm painfully familiar. As four drivers mm-hmm. in my household, our insurance bill is pretty big and the driver's abstracts are pretty clean. Uh, I appreciate the time, Michael. If people would like to find out more or speak with you, maybe peruse possibility to be a hitch ride driver, what do they do next? Uh, you just visit hitchride.ca and click on the driver link for all the information you need there or uh, fill out the form and uh, send us an email as well. Appreciate the time, Michael. Good luck. Stay in touch. Thanks, thanks so much, Patty. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. It's Mike Taylor. Hitchride.ca if you're so inclined. All right. Uh, I want to take the break here half on time. Uh, and, you know, welcome uh, any additional calls about Labor Day-related matters. And I know there's a caller in the queue here who wants to talk about pharmacare. It's probably worth all our time to... Look at what pharmacare means because the reality on the ground is that pharmaceuticals are way out of control for expense. There's, I think, conversations that need to be had about the uh, length of time that a drug can have its patented place before a generic equivalent is introduced to the market. Pharmacare comes with a whopping big price tag, but the numbers of Canadians, and it's in the millions, who are taking, maybe not refilling their prescriptions, maybe taking half a dose because they can't afford to take the full dose and for a refill on time, on schedule. And so what happens then? It comes with direct implications for more and more engagement with the healthcare system. So if you're not taking the drugs prescribed by a doctor to control symptoms, your symptoms worsen, then what happens? You go to the hospital. Then what happens? It's the most expensive thing in the country. So it's worth looking up. I mean, every time there's been a report done, whether it be for the Canadian Senate or for the House of Commons or for Parliament, it's come up with basically the same result. Whopping big price tag, but cost-benefit analysis has been pretty clear. The most recent one done was by Dr. Eric Hoskins leading the team, and it's worth having a look now. It's lengthy and the numbers are overwhelming. But when we get to the summary por- portion of here's what it's cost, how we do it today, here's what it costs, and even if it comes down to like bulk buying uh, upside, there is an argument to be made and certainly a reasonable conversation to be had about Pharmacare. We'll entertain that. Then we're going to talk about World Energy GH2, and then we're going to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the program. All right, let's go to line number two. Good morning, Mary Shortle. You're on the air. No, good morning, Patty, and thanks for that commentary uh, just now on Pharmacare because uh, it's such an important issue, and it's... uh, uh, what I'd like to talk about this morning, if that's okay, because I've been listening all week and there have been several callers calling in uh, to talk about the dilemma. And, and you said it uh, just a few minutes ago, how many people uh, in our country and in our province don't have a pharmacare program, don't have access to prescription drugs. And they are, they're either not taking their medicines or they're sharing their medicines and Ultimately, like you said, that's costing, um, it's costing us a lot more. Uh, now that I'm the official candidate for the NDP in St. John's East, and, and also in my role as an advisor to the NDP leader federally, we've been over the summer knocking on doors and talking to people about Pharmacare, actually, and asking them to sign a petition that, uh, that they've been asking Canadians right across the country to sign to ask the government uh, to uh, speak 
speed up their commitment uh, to get this done because they have been promising pharmacare for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And it's a really important issue for people at the door. We had no problem getting signatures. In fact, people were saying, you know, this needs to happen. Uh, sooner rather than later, and and some of the stories have been uh, have been pretty sad about people's uh, not being able to access it, and about a third of of working people don't have access to that, and that really means that the less you earn, probably the less likely you are to have a prescription drug coverage. So when we talk about things like universal health care or universal pharmacare, it's really an important issue when we talk about equality for everyone as well. So it's not just about affording drugs, it's about you know having the capacity no matter where you live uh, to be able to get those essential things that you should have. One of the, uh, just to pick up on a point you made there about people who don't have prescription drug coverage through their employer, that's where it becomes tricky for me. Because what we cannot do is allow corporations, especially the wealthiest ones in the country, to be fully let off the hook. Because part of the, the incentive for people to want to work for some companies is looking at benefits packages and that would include things like dental care and pharmaceutical coverage and those types of things. So how we incorporate that, incorporate that into co-payments for people who don't have coverage versus folks who currently do, I don't know how we you know, focus that corporate angle because that's important. We don't need to take on something government money-wise if there's already private sector coverage being afforded to their employees. So how we navigate that is going to be the trickiest part if this ever makes any movement forward. Yeah, I mean, the the government has promised that they would put up some framework for legislation uh, by the end of the year. And I think one of the important things about the NDP uh, supply and confidence agreement with the government is that they're in a position to be able to hold their feet to the fire. There's been, and you referenced some of the reports that have been done, there has been a lot of research done starting in 2018 with Dr. Eric Hoskins, who you referenced as well. And report after report, even when they talk about a fully universal program, uh, if it was fully universal, uh, even then, you know, the, 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 it would save the provinces and the territories, uh, also who are who are employers themselves, right? Uh, people uh, and and companies. It would actually save the CCPA and the Canadian Doctors for Medicare say it would save them about eleven billion dollars a year. The, the parliamentary budget officer says about four point two billion, but that's that's at at the research they're doing, right? I guess when you look at employers and big corporations, um, you know, smaller smaller employers are also forced to try and compete with the bigger ones in order to attract uh, workers as well when they want to. So they're going to have to pay benefits in the system we live in now in order to attract and retain workers. And that puts them at a disadvantage sometimes with the bigger corporations um, that have to pay for it. So you're right. There's, But this requires this framework, this legislative framework going forward, but we haven't heard anything. And it's... Uh, People know it's there. In the last uh, poll that I know the Canadian Labour Congress did, there was 91% of Canadians believe that our public health care system should include a pharmacare program. And we're the only country in the developing world that has a public health care system that doesn't have it. So, uh, you know, and, and the things you talked about, for sure, about the buying and bulk purchasing and stuff. Um, they use the example of Lipitor, for example, uh, for a year's coverage in uh, in Canada, it's about $811. And in New Zealand, where they have that pharmacare program uh, in their public health care program, it costs about $15. So the difference of bulk buying, uh, uh, as you referenced, obviously, is a big savings for the government. But also, it's 
the um, the pressure that comes off the healthcare system when people can actually take the medications they need to stay well as well. So, uh, lots of issues around there, right? And the Liberals haven't delivered, and they've promised, and it's um, and people are talking about that, and they're they're wanting uh, to hear something on it. And I think you know that that one other thing, and, and the NDP have been champions for this from the get-go. Um, I know as long as I've been involved in the labor movement, they've been championing it, and now in my involvement in the party, I know how seriously they, uh, they're putting the Liberals' feet to the fire, so I guess it also speaks to the need to have uh, more NDP voices to be able to, to uh, come forward with these programs, because those are the issues that Canadians elect their governments on. They're the, they're the issues that they're talking about at the door. When people are sick and you go to your doctor, I'm pretty confident in saying the doctor doesn't care and nor does the patient care who you voted for in the last election. You just want to be well. You want to be able to That's afford right. things in life. You want to be able to afford your prescriptions. So there's not there's not a whole lot of politics inside of this policy. I don't know who Eric Hoskins has ever voted for in his life. He was a former deputy, uh, pardon me, Minister of Health in the province of Ontario, I believe under a liberal he government. So we he can was. say, well, he's a liberal, and, and so that's the end of the story. But the report is extremely comprehensive. It's so oh, yeah. thick that I was unable to get through it in its entirety. So let's just say that, you know, the NDP, a bunch of socialists, you're going to eventually run out of other people's money. And then there's the other side of the political spectrum, we'll say, in the conservative voters. And the conservative uh, play on this has long been the same. It's that they would find ways to lower drug prices, find ways to increase access, but no one really knows what that means. Are we going to have a government that says to the drug companies, you're not allowed to charge X for this or X for that, or there's a cap on increases annually or what have you, or we're going to reduce the number of years that your, your developed drug holds a patent before generic are introduced. Never really much on the way of meat on that particular bone. So people get scared by numbers, and so we rightfully should, because, you know, at some point we run out of money. That's not a crack at socialism. That's just the unfortunate reality of life. If the price tag, and uh, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, it was $15 billion a year. But the report also, when people get scared by headlines, then if you just latch onto that and that alone, you don't get to the cost-benefit analysis portion of this report, which says that they've, you know, used, you use $4.2 billion from the PBO, and there's other reports out there that I think have exaggerated numbers. That report from Hoskins and his crowd said they uh, predict the amount spent on prescription drugs in Canada would drop by roughly $5 billion per year. It does come with co-pays, $2 for common drugs, $5 for less, uh, less common drugs. Uh, they would waive all those fees for low-income people and or folks on uh, social assistance, for instance. So there's still a source of revenue, but if there's a way to save $5 billion, and that's just on the spending on the drugs, that does not include what happens if you get sicker and sicker and end up in the hospital, which has got to be factored in at some point, because we know in this province we spend over $4 billion on health care for a population of about 520,000 people. We spend copious uh, dozens of billions of dollars nationwide. It's not seemingly doing what it's intended to do. We're simply reacting to people getting sick for us to try to keep them out of the hospital. So I'll give you the final thought, Mary, before I uh, take a break. No, but I think that it's the political, the, where the politics comes into it, Patty, I think it's, it's the political choice to make this happen, to start the ball rolling. The consultation's been done, the research has been done, and now it's time to actually put the framework together. And, you know, what it, that will be will be what they, you know, what they all can negotiate and pass. I mean, the government becomes the negotiator for uh, the price of the drugs and for the, the length of time the drug can, uh, has to 
not be patented or, you know, all those things that you're talking about. That And that all gets rolled out. What what uh, what income threshold they use, what, you know, whether it's universal or co-pay, all those things still need to be put into a legislative framework. And that, you know, it, it, the Liberals had by the end of the year, according to the, the schedule and, and what they're saying publicly, to put that legislative framework together. And then once that's in place, then the rest of it uh, will fall into the place as well. But the one thing that we're hearing at the door and that, that you and I obviously uh, have been hearing uh, by your listeners and the people we're talking to is that right now we're not the big beneficiaries of this. It's it's big pharma and private insurance companies that are, as you said, leaking in more and more profits. And so something, you know, it's not it's not out of the realm to have a pharma care program as part of our health care program. Lots of countries do. There's lots of uh, best practices out there. So we can get it right. We have a window to get it right, whatever that looks like, taking into consideration, you know, what you're saying and, and everything that the research shows. And so I think that's um, it's just time for them to get it done and not just talk about it So because it's been 25 years, actually, since um, the Liberals first promised some form of a, a pharmacare program. Uh, just at the end of that, if I could also just put a little plug in for this. I heard Ron talk about the Central uh, Newfoundland Labor Day festivities. There's Labor Day festivities happening here in St. John's as well, uh, and everyone's invited. It's uh, not just a celebration of the work we do, but also it's a family fun day and barbecue uh, um, uh, that's happening Monday, starting at 11:30 at, at Dominion at Kitty Vitty, and making its way down to the Legion. Um, and there's where there'll be uh, the, the fun day and all the stuff that happens there in the barbecue. And it'd be nice to see uh, the community come together as they always do to uh, uh, to stop, take a little breather from all the all the issues that we deal with every day, and to just uh, bring your families down, have a hamburger, hot dog, and have a little bit of fun. Sounds about right. What the doctor ordered. They can prescribe me a little mental break anytime. There you go. Thanks, Mary. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening, uh, Patty. Take care. You too. Okay, bye-bye. Bye uh, look, I mean, and things like that, look, we've got to talk about the money. The money is, you know, when we're talking about health, sometimes it feels like it's a little bit callous to blend in the conversation about money and our health, but it's, that's it, right? I mean, money does indeed, for better or worse, make the world go round. And so when we talk about how government spends and where they spend and the priority of spend, inside the world of pharma care, it's just a discussion that I think needs to be fleshed out a little further. Because like many, you know, we all read the headlines. And maybe don't dig into the text. And if someone sees a report that says $15 billion a year, you say, well, how the hell are we supposed to be spending $15 billion a year? Look at the national net debt and all the rest of it. There's a conversation to be had there. You know, whether or not you think it's the right thing, maybe hopefully what we can do, especially when we talk about health, uh, is maybe the politics is sort of derailing real pragmatic, comprehensive conversations about stuff because health is really more about policy, I think, than it is with uh, whatever political leanings you might have because regardless of who you are, when you get sick, you want to get better. Regardless of who you vote for, you want to stay well. Regardless of what party you support, you want to be able to afford the pharmaceuticals as prescribed by a doctor. Let's take a break. Dennis, you stay right there to talk about World Energy GH2. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Doc, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? I haven't talked to you in quite a while. Doing okay. How about you, Dennis? Yeah, pretty good, I must say. Everything is well and life goes on. Uh, I did want to make a few comments, Patty, on the World Energy uh, Project in particular. But I have to say, you know, I'm, I'm very much in favour of the development of new energy sources. I mean, 
It's part of humankind. We've been developing energy ever since humankind started to rub sticks together to create fire. And and it will continue uh, as as humanity evolves, but uh, in, in the case of uh, world energy, um, again, yeah, if uh, the proper scrutiny is there and the proper regulation is there and the proper in public engagement is in place, uh, then, you know, uh, that project should and may come to uh, reality. As you know, in a previous conversation with you, I, I indicated that right from the start, I, I didn't agree that the uh, environmental assessment should be a product of, the, of John Risley and the World Energy Group. Uh, I thought there should be more independence in it. And I think I mentioned to you at the time that, uh, you know, the uh, companies like Equinor and other companies uh, would never be allowed to author pretty well their, their own environmental assessment. And that's what's happened here. Uh, so... But now, how is that different? Is, how, how is it different? Because Equinor did indeed submit their uh, mitigation measures, some 138 when it has pertained to emissions, uh, all the research about uh, ice flow and all those types of things. That's done by them, submitted to the government for analysis by whether it be the feds and or the province and or the CNLOPB. So how is it different with hydrogen? Well, the, the difference is, I mean, there, there was more independence uh, in those projects and continues to be and should be. And uh, the federal environmental agency took that report and uh, and gave it a thorough analysis and listened to the public and uh, gave it the okay. And that process, if it's followed rigidly, uh, is fine. But, I mean, having said that, uh, the economic impact statement is in, and uh, we should now, uh, on the part of government, we should have... Uh, public consultations. I mean, these are two questions you could probably ask the minister for me. Uh, number one, will the provincial government uh, insist and have public consultations on the project and the economic in, uh, impact statement so that the other side gets a realistic time period and a chance to uh, give their side of the story. And the other thing that concerns me, Patty, is what will happen 30 years out from now. Because these turbines have a lifespan of roughly 30 years. So 30 years from now, all the players are going to be long gone. And the turbines will be in the process of the end of their lifespan. So what happens at that point in time? And is that part of... Uh, the uh, economic impact that government is looking at and will insist on. So the question would be, uh, would the government insist that World Energy set up an account, put the, put the money in the account, escrow, uh, not to be touched by anybody, to underwrite, 30 years out, to underwrite the, if these turbines have to be removed and the land has to be rehabilitated, uh, my grandchildren and your grandchildren are not going to have to pay the shot. So, you know, if the minister would answer those two questions, I'll be listening. 
Okay, so from where I sit, it should never be the case of anything but polluter pays. So abandoned oil wells, wind turbines, reclamation after mining projects, and the lifespan has come and gone. should never be anybody but the polluter, the company, the proponent that should pay 100% of it every single time. It should right. be contractually obligated right up front. There should never be any other instance. And in this province, that hasn't been the case. Look no further than the liabilities we've uh, assumed at come by chance, right? So yeah. it should not be that way. There's no pragmatic reason why it should be that way. And if the argument is, well, proponents won't come to the table if they have to clean up their own mess, too bad about them. I mean, yeah, so. I agree, and, and you're right. I mean, and, but it has to be put in place now. The of course. money has to be put in place so that at the end of the 30-year period, whatever has to be done will be done, and the money is there from World Energy or any of the companies that are involved in these projects to clean it up, take it away and rehabilitate the land. Sure, that's already on my list because when there's lifespan sure. mentions, it always comes to my mind about what happens after the lifespan comes and goes. Uh, just in a concise fashion, Doc, what was your first question? The first question was about public consultation. Okay, and, social licenses. Uh, because, I mean, you know, this is what, we're 10 days into that 50-day period now. So, you know, there's no big rush to do this yesterday. Uh, so let's take our time, give it the proper scrutiny, have public consultations, okay. and then if it's a go, it's a go, and we're all behind it. It'll benefit the province, as will the other energy projects. And again, as I said at the start, uh, no harm in developing new energy sources. We need new energy sources, even after this one. And... Uh, you know, is part of who we are, but it has to be done properly and with the with the regulation and the scrutiny. So, will the minister have public consultations? And again, this is a provincial issue, so that you know, you you, you could have three or four public consultations. Uh, for example, uh, one in Corner Brook, uh, one in Labrador, one in Central, and one in St. John, something like that. They can arrange. And uh, for anybody to say there's not enough time, I mean, that's ridiculous. You make the time to do it, to do it right. Appreciate the time, Doc. Thanks, Teddy. You take care of yourself. You too. All the best. Hey, bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Andrew. You're on the air. Good morning, Teddy. How are you doing today? Doing grand. How about you? Not bad, sir. Not bad. I'm calling in today about uh, the town of Marystown um, and some issues that I guess uh, fellow residents here are seeing in the area. Um, the town basically has a blatant disregard for the fo- uh, for following the Municipalities Act and the NL Procurement Act. Um, they're basically just subquoting it when it's convenient um, for them. Where I'm going with this, I guess, basically, there was a uh, contract uh, that was issued uh, by the town. Um, in uh, request went out in November. They made a phone call to me. I own a company in the area. They uh, made a phone call to me in early November asking for a budgetary quote on uh, redoing uh, the rooftop of the arena. Um, so basically, I asked for a scope of work, uh, you know, when the, the date would be uh, required to have it submitted and whatnot. And they instructed, no, it's just a budgetary quote that they, you know, wanted me to go and look at it and see what we thought um, the place needed uh, to fix it up and to redo it and to submit a quote based on that. So that's what I did. On November 23rd, I sent in the quote um, to the uh, town CAO. 
I uh, didn't hear anything else about it after uh, until the spring, uh, watching the town's uh, minutes, I uh, understood that the uh, project uh, contract had been awarded. Um, so, of course, I went on some investigations, and there was never a tender um, issued for the project. So it's a project over $275,000. Um, there was no uh, no tender issued. There was no uh, scope of work issued. There was no. There was a lot of things that were uh, basically missing in it. Um, so I went to the town and requested uh, under Section 215 of the Municipalities Act. Um, the following documents shall be made available by the council for public inspection during the normal business hours of the council. Uh, lists off a bunch of different stuff. In that is open public tenders, financial statements, contracts, orders, uh, etc. So I requested um, to see the information, and uh, I was told that they were going to contact um, a gentleman with uh, the municipalities and uh, get the information, the okay to release information, and get back to me. That was in early June. Uh, I'm actually still fighting to see the documentation. Um, now they're telling me that under Section 24 of the uh, Public Procurement uh, Act, um, basically that there's no, they don't have, uh, I only had 10 days um, after the awarding of the contract to, uh, you know, to request uh, any information on it. And in that information, uh, there's nothing to be there about the uh, successful bid, basically, right? So I'm wondering what kind of a situation do we live in when, uh, you know, uh, you've got municipalities of this size, um, basically, in um Particular uh, information, we'll say, from from public uh, uh, guidelines and, and regulations and policies um, to suit them uh, and to cover up for a, you know we're supposed to have a transparent uh, council and government. Uh, so much so that the public procurement policy states that you know uh, the uh, accountability and transparency um, they need to you know ensure procurement activities are open, transparent, and accountable. Any purchasing activities uh, should be conducted in a fair trans. Uh, Consistent and transparent matter uh, with view to obtain the best value for the public money. And I think in, uh, you know, the way that this stuff is going, there's certainly no uh, no um, securement or, uh, or protection of uh, public money. It just seems like it's funneling out to whoever they wish. Yeah, when we talk about purchasing, you know, we've seen the scandalous behavior that's happened in a variety of different departments where they split invoices so they don't have to get supervisory sign off of those types of things quite another one we're talking about procurement to let contracts because everyone in business knows the real gravy is if you get to do a contract with the government right there's a lot of money whether it be municipally provincially federally so that has got to be up for every ounce of scrutiny that the people require because i want to know what's going on very quickly andrew i, I i'm assuming you're the same andrew that i've exchanged emails with right Absolutely. Okay. Right. <laughs> and of course, I only saw them this morning. I haven't had a chance to dig in and get a full grasp of what you're talking about. Can you go back to the very beginning and talk about specifically what happened yeah. uh, that was not a normal tender package approach? So just give me the Coles notes quickly so that I can wrap my mind around it when I go to read your emails later. Sure. So basically, it was just a phone call uh, from the chief administrative officer of the town requesting um, uh, me go do a quote on the arena. Um, so like any, any excuse me, like any normal uh, policy or, uh, or excuse me, like any normal uh, quote, you need to uh, to know what the scope of work would be. You need to know what the scope of work would be. You know what deadlines, um, exactly what they're looking to do. If uh, there was actually a shingled roof there uh, on the building. So they would have needed, you know, uh, to specify if they were going to go with shingles, if they were going to go with metal, uh, different profiles, colors. I mean, you know, uh, none of this information was given to me whatsoever. So it was as, 
vague as vague gets. So I simply submitted a quote based on that. Now, my quote was submitted on the 24th of, um, uh, excuse me, the 24th of November. And the winning successful quote was submitted December 24th. Now, they were sent to the same email address. Um, so my question, you know, is was it just sat there? Did, did, you know, there was no public procurement uh, policies following, uh, follow, uh, being followed, sorry, to, uh, to open up any bids. There was no documentation of it, no records, no nothing. And it's just trying to be swept under the rug. Andrew, give me an opportunity uh, later today or as soon as I can get to the information you provided because there was a lot of it. And, no. and that's great. And I do appreciate people sending me along whatever I need to be aware of. So let me have a careful review of it, get back to you. And if that requires another on-air phone call to further flesh it out, I can do that as well. I appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. I appreciate yours. Thanks, Andrew. All the best. Take care. Have a good day. Thanks. You too. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk wind, hydrogen, ammonia with the Minister of Industry, Energy, and Technology. That's Andrew Parsons. Don't go away. Join Craig Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Let's take a morning to the Liberal member for Burgio Lapoil. He's the Minister of Industry, Energy, and Technology. That's Andrew Parsons. Good morning, Minister Parsons. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How about you? Not bad. Uh, busy day yesterday, but uh, back in the beautiful West Coast. There's a lot to discuss here. Before we get into process, uh, curiously, the Deputy Prime Minister, Christian Freeland, in Argentia, talking about them being out in front of the whole game and Pattern Energy in the relationship with the Port of Argentia, and lo and behold, Pattern doesn't move forward. Is there a reason why? Is it because they weren't interested in Crown Land in Phase 1? Yeah, so basically what I would say as it relates to pattern, and I'm, I'm trying my best, like we will be going through a debrief process with all uh, the bidders in the second phase. Pattern, the best thing I can say is that pattern uh, absolutely has a path forward. Their first phase does not rely on crown land as the others do. So the others have to go through a crown land assessment. They do not have to go through that. So they're absolutely able to move forward as we move into the second and third phases, the big issue, and same with some others too, has been the power uh, requirements. Uh, but look, they have a path forward. Uh, we'll see where it goes. As for the federal government on Monday, I mean, look, the deputy pri- prime minister wants to come down. Uh, good for them. I don't think it's ever a bad thing to have exposure, uh, but not anything that we had anything to do with whatsoever. I know that this doesn't constitute a green light for either of these four companies to fully proceed and start construction or what have you, but let's talk about the process. So we went from an enormous number of companies that's been whittled down to four now, and there's some 107,000 hectares of land to be used if indeed these all four move forward. But the reference is that the independent review. Who are the independent reviewers? So what we did, and again, we went through, this was, you know, months at this. You think that the the call for bids ended March 23rd. We make the announcement on August 30th. So what you have is you have representation from my department, IET, uh, Finance, uh, Indigenous Affairs and Reconciliation, Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro, and we had a bunch of third-party analysts. So we had a financial and business analyst, a technical advisor, a project management and risk management analyst, as well as a fairness advisor to come in who basically oversees the entire process and at the end of the day gives an assessment of whether the pro- 
process was fair or not. Um, what I can tell you is I've got the letter from that group right here who you know, basically attest that, yes, everything was done in accordance with the call for bids, uh, that it was fair, it maintained you know, uh, confidentiality requirements or conflicts of interest, and everybody was treated consistently and openly. So that's uh, the different people that were into this. Like, I can honestly say that it was basically handled by civil servants, bureaucrats, outside consultants, and at the end of the day, they do a scoring that they bring to us and say, here's what we come up with. Now, the, you know, the decision always rests with any cabinet and any government in the country, uh, but we have something here that was put in front of us that we, we thought was the right move, and that's what we move forward with. And I used 107,000 hectares. That's just for one of the four. The others is 30,000, 270,000, and uh, about 108,000 for one of the other projects. Okay, so... When the information was released, I mean, the, just for World Energy GH2, for instance, it's almost 4,000 pages. So much of that was way over my head. But the thought is that there's a real fast track. It feels like we're moving pretty quickly here, even though this has been happening for a number of months. But the public has given up to the 11th of October to offer feedback. That was a 50-day window. People think that there's maybe more public hearings need to be had. You know, something created like a joint panel like for Muskrat Falls and that type of inquiry. Getting this right has long been the mantra here, but it feels too many that this is moving very quickly. So why not more public consultation and more time for people to have their say? And maybe to even be able to fund interveners who are experts in different fields. So a couple things there. One thing I will say is that no matter what we do, I mean, at the same time that you have some individuals saying it's moving too quickly, we have an opposition that says you're not moving fast enough. We have others to say that you're, you have to keep up with Nova Scotia, who, by the way, made their decisions in two weeks. Nova Scotia is ahead of the game here because they took a process where there was no uh, independent assessment. They basically had people put their assessment in. They took it within cabinet, made the decision. They're moving forward. And here we are over here just to make sure that everything was seen as open and transparent. We put it through this process. So all those need to be taken into context. I think we're moving at the right speed, which is keeping up with demand, but at the same time acknowledging we have a new industry that needs to that needs to be assessed. And, and we do have significant questions about the setup and what it looks like in the future. What I'll say is this. We have an EA process that is tried and tested. It's been used in our you know, various resource projects, including mining. That one is there. Now, World Energy, and again, a lot of people talk about the one project, the but we have four that are moving forward. But World took the, the gamble, I guess you could say, of saying, we are so confident that we are going to go ahead with this EA without the approval. Fairly risky, but again, that the risk was borne by them. One thing I pointed this out yesterday when we talk about the joint panel, we talk about Muskrat Falls, there's a very big difference between Muskrat, where we expended billions of dollars of taxpayer money, and this one where this is all being done by private capital. So there, there is a, a far different financial risk. But I'm confident that right now, look, we've done our thing about proving the bidders. It's going to go into an EA slash Crown Land process, which is used for every other development. Everybody's going to get an opportunity to put their, uh, put their concerns forward and, and have them weighed by an independent regulator. And then I'm, I'm confident it's going to come, what comes out on the other end will work. One example recently, Marathon. They were slowed down in the construction of their mine because there were caribou mitigation issues. So that was identified. Look, this is an issue. The department brought it up. They figured out how do we uh, mitigate the situation, 
and then they move forward. Same thing could happen here, but I leave that to the process, which I don't have a part in. We do not participate. Not to say that there aren't people uh, in and around Combi Chance or down the Bureau Peninsula or in Bot that are opposed to it, but we've heard more, much more elation versus any sort of the consternation that we hear coming from the Port of Port Peninsula, basically because it's a pretty congested area for these turbines to be installed. Even in Phase 1, 164, and these are massive. When people drive up and down the southern shore, what you see there is not what we're going to see elsewhere. Is there any consideration inside of World Energy GH2 to push it further afield, as like up the Burjo Road closer, like uh, a caller said yesterday? And on top of that, with consultation or what people might say the lack thereof, do you think that the government has social license to give final approval to any project? Absolutely, I think. I mean, this is something we've been talking about for two years. Okay, this is, you know, there's been ample, ample opportunities for conversation. And I do tend to think that, look, and, and it's hard to say this because some people, the reality is, Patty, the minute I say something, some people are waiting to turn on it. I think that there is valid concern out there, but I also think there's a valid process through which to run it through. I do think that there are some people with concerns that the minute you answer them, there will be a new concern. It's just a, we are not going to do this. We do not want to do this. Now, one thing is for sure, as projects move forward, every bit of crown land they have, and keep in mind, we put, a, we put out 3.6 million hectares were available in the first round. What has been awarded is half a million. So there's far less land being used than was offered. I do think as companies move forward, they are paying for every bit of that land. So if they can find an opportunity to reduce their footprint, it's only going to save them money. I think you'll see that happen, but that's up to the companies as they move forward. As it stands, the land that they have now has gone through this process. Um, and you know what? I, I got the details here somewhere. I mean, when you look at the size of the turbines everywhere, you know what? There's a lot of similarities. There's not a whole lot of difference between the four projects in terms of, you know, there's there's changes in uh, the size of the land. Um, I think the issue comes down to that on the West Coast, there may have been a difference in the approach to the community as there was done in other areas because when you see three out of four where I'm hearing very little but in one area maybe it's a different approach but I'll leave it at that. As per request I know Dave uh, mentioned he would like to put you on hold so I can hit the brakes on time as I always do on this program we'll come back because there's a lot more to talk about process and project okay there we go let's put the minister on hold take that break don't go away Greg. Welcome back to the show. Let's rejoin the Minister of Industry, Energy and Technology on two. That's Andrew Parsons. Minister Parsons, you're back on the air. So, Patty, I got some information here, here that I think is important. I have, and thank you for the break. actually allowed me to track it down. So I'm just going to provide a little bit of information about each uh, successful proponent in terms of what they're doing. So Everwind, which is on Buren Peninsula, they have 800 turbines, 175 meters high, and they're looking at about 270,000 hectares. ABO, who are in the come-by-chance area, they have 840 turbines, 200 meters high, and they're looking at about 115,000 hectares of land. Uh, Everick, which is in the Botwood area, 675 turbines, 216 meters high. They're only looking at about 42,000 hectares. And then we'll come to World, uh, who obviously generate a lot of the conversation. 455 turbines, 178 meters high, and 109,000 hectares. So they are far from the anomaly. And this is not about, you know, 
speaking up for any company. I've stayed out of it during the entire process. But this is actually about putting the information out there that was used by us to make the decision. So I think that's important information to have some context for what's going on in the different areas of the province. Are the proponents allowed to use Crown Land leased for anything but the specific purpose as designed, whether it be wind harnessing wind energy for hydrogen ammonia? My understanding is no. I will leave that to, again, that's not a decision that I'm necessarily involved in. Now that we go through this process, they go through those two relevant departments, FFA, uh, who handle Crown Lands, and ECC, who deal with the environmental assessment. But my understanding is that this is purpose-driven. There is a reason that we reserve this Crown Land. It was for wind-slash-hydrogen development. So usage for anything but those processes would seem to me to be out of bounds. We don't know a lot about interconnect. Activity. So what, what, what do we know about, for instance, if they don't have enough power being generated by wind to co- complete the electrolysis, they're connected with our grid, so their ability to buy power from us, and I think most importantly, when, when and if they have excess power, selling it back to the grid. So help walk us through interconnectivity, because that has an implication on my rates, on my hydro bill. Absolutely. So that is one of the issues that played a major role in this, primarily from the power demand that was required. Uh, some uh, proponents... Uh, had a power requirement that was far beyond what we were able to provide. And I know that uh, someone who is much uh, more able to talk about this is Jennifer Williams, who would be happy to chat about this. She played a role on the committee as they did this. Uh, right now, only one uh, world itself needs, I think, about 10 megs of energy uh, for different periods of time. Uh, that is doable under the grid that we have. The other ones do not have a power requirement. As it relates to, I guess, reintegration or putting it back into the grid, that's still work that's being done. So Hydro itself is going to be doing work now. They they couldn't start before this because if you're doing nine different studies on nine different proponents, it's a huge amount of work and some of it may be irrelevant when it's done. Now they will look at each of the proponents and say, how does this, you know, integrate into our grid? How can we possibly absorb what is the you know what's the uptake on that so there's still a lot of work left to do on that uh so i I think i'd be better off by saying that there's more to report on that as we move forward because that's a big one i mean that has implication on my hydro bill so i think everyone would like to know more about that we are going to have miss williams on sooner than later hopefully here on this program Mm -hmm. okay so with water i mean it's an extremely valuable resource one of the most valuable resources in the world are they only allowed to use water for this commercial application? No no thoughts of being able to use water for export or different projects or anything? No, Do we have no, firm no. control on the water that it's only for electrolysis? Absolutely. It's not meant for export. All the, the cracking of, I guess, the, the molecules will be done here, which is what the water is for. Uh, no doubt there is a significant water usage uh, for each of the projects. But again, to provide some comparison purposes, uh, the highest, I guess, use of water for any of these projects will be the ABO one come by chance. That one is still about three times less what is used on a daily basis by Decora in Labrador. So yes, there's a significant water usage, but it is not as high as industrial projects that are, have been sanctioned and operating in this province for some time. Uh, but again, coming back to it, it's used for the process. This is not about export. This is not about taking water and shipping it anywhere else. And I will say that internally, water use has been one of those top-of-mind issues. We know how big a conversation it is in this province. We know that it's got some history of conversation. So that that was never 
never far from our minds as we move through this. World Energy is going to utilize an already established commercial reservoir, the Abitibi Reservoir. What about the others? Where's that water coming from? I got to be honest, Patty, off the top of my head right now, I don't have the specifics in front of me in terms of what you know, reservoir or what the source of water is. Uh, all I can say to you is that that would have been a part of something that was considered by ECC during the first phase. So environment was involved in the first phase of this process. They wouldn't have been involved. In, and, and the first phase was basically a pass-fail assessment saying, is this feasible? Do they have the financial means, the technical wherewithal to do this? They would have been involved in that. However, if they're not involved in the second stage because this would actually fetter their right as a department in which to make decisions. The fact is now, as we move into the environmental assessment, this will again come top of mind and they will be having hands on this and eyes on this. Uh, speaking of environmental assessments, any reason why you know, people are clamoring for federal involvement here and federal intervention and a federal environmental assessment, I assume conducted by the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada, is that a possibility or a reality? Uh, what I would say there is that while this is solely within provincial jurisdiction, my understanding is that there are possible triggers that could activate a federal assessment. Now, again, not being the environment guy, more being the industry guy, I can't tell you specifically uh, what they are. So that depends on, I guess, a number of factors. So I would only be speculating now as to whether that can. I, I think theoretically it can happen, but whether it does or should is a whole different ballgame. Do you have any idea what those triggers might be? I have, to be honest with you, look, I have no idea. I've never been a minister of environment, uh, and I've never been involved in an EA because it's sort of contrary. I guess my job is out there when I talk about oil and mining and resource development is to push that forward. But that's why we had that department and the regulator uh, to be able to deal with that. And this is where I totally throw Bernie Davis under the bus and say you should invite him on to talk about it. Happy to do it, and he's on our list as well. There's reference to lifespan, 35 years, 40 years. Let's just say that their business model doesn't manifest itself to be profitable because the price is one thing and energy loss is another, and the world is changing very quickly. So their best laid plans might not come to pass, even if it makes it to the full 40 years. And this is kind of an environmental question, but it's much more a contractual obligation question about polluter pays. Will these companies be 100% on the hook for decommissioning in full and doing away with the turbines and all the different moving parts? Absolutely. So decommissioning is another one of those topics that has been brought to us and certainly was brought up internally. And I guess, unfortunately, in this province, we've got somewhat of a sad history. I mean, you only have to go back not that many years to look at mining operations where they came in, things went sideways, and they left the mess that the taxpayer in the province was on the hook for. That doesn't happen now. Part of the mining industry is any approvals come with that plan and those bonds, assurances, for financial wherewithal to take care of that. So what I'll say here is absolutely we are aware, and nothing will be fully and finally awarded without a decommissioning plan and assurances put forward as well. We're still working on the, the specific policy internally to go along with that, uh, but that's absolutely something that is there and will happen. And look no further than the liabilities we've uh, assumed at uh, come by chance. I mean, they're real, and polluter pays has to be the way forward, regardless of we're talking about mines or the oil business, abandoned wells, and uh, of you course now with this. It, you have to factor it into your business case, and it's your responsibility. Uh, you know, there was many years of this province, and, and many other provinces, you know, there's a lot of orphaned and abandoned mines and, and wells out there across the country. Uh, but I think that's something now that I think business and industry knows that you're on, you're going to be on the hook for, and we're going to
going to, and not just we're going to take your word, we're going to make sure that we have the, the financing there to take care of it. Can you just revisit the height and the scope of the turbines for one second? I know you have the numbers in front of you, and when you think about a couple hundred meters high, that's, I mean, two or three times the height of the Confederation Building. So are we talking meters or feet? I'm talking uh, meters here. So to give some example, the Confederation Building is 64 meters high. I think the CN Tower is about 553 meters high. I might be off a little bit. So when you look at these, Everwinds is 175 meters high. So absolutely about three times the size of the Confederation Building. Um, then you look at ABOs are 200, Everex are 216, and Worlds are 178. So these are tall, uh, tall structures, but. Uh, in comparison, I don't think they're any different than the ones that are in operation in uh, various states, in Nova Scotia, various provinces and throughout the world. I think they're all in the same, uh, again, same ballpark. Uh, I don't know if this belongs uh, on your desk or Minister Davis's desk, but, you know, people will be worried to access the berry picking and hunting grounds and traditional way of life, not only just eyesore stuff and just how massive these things are, but impact on wildlife movement. I think you mentioned caribou earlier yeah. when we talked about marathon. Is that on your desk or is that Minister Davis's desk? Where do I go with that? So that is a part of the environmental assessment. So there's two phases there. Like when we went through our grading process, so stage two, there were 65 questions across eight categories, including, you know, project risk mitigation, uh, community and indigenous engagement. Those, those were specific parts. So companies and proponents have put forward their plans as it relates to those very issues. In fact, I was on, I can't remember if it was Facebook or Twitter, just yesterday, and there were people talking about specific, you know, berry picking mitigation that has been offered. What I'll say is this, that's something that goes into EA, and then when they talk about the impact on the environment, and people need to bring those concerns forward, there's a process there. You have an opportunity to contribute. You just have to go to that specific site, and again, I'll leave it to ECC to ensure that that's publicized, and I know the companies are going to do that as well. Everybody needs to be a part of it. Put forward the concerns, whether it's bat mortality, what is the effect and impact on birds? Uh, what is the impact on, you know, moose hunting come the fall? Uh, all those things. You know, when we, ta when we have to put in a resource road, what is the responsibility for when this is done to repair that or to mitigate it and put it back? But again, I come back to the big point here. This is not absolutely new. I mean, I've been seeing towers in Ramia for 13 years. There's towers down on the southern shore, and there's towers elsewhere. So there is like I'm trying not to understate the importance or, uh, of making sure that we keep all these in mind, but I'm also trying to make sure people understand that this is not brand new. It's new to many of us, but it's not even brand new to this province, and it's certainly not brand new to many other provinces and states. There is a, there is a way to ensure that we can take it all into consideration. Yeah, I mean, the new is the process for uh, hydrogen, ammonia, and exports, and what that looks like. Uh, I know this is a federal question, but I wonder if you have any information. So, we might not be putting provincial money, cash on the barrel head. Water is valuable, land is valuable, access to port is valuable, but there is upwards of four 40% of a federal tax credit. So we are in, in some form, because I'm a federal taxpayer as much as a provincial. Are there any caveats attached to that, like for hitting thresholds of production uh, or anything of the like? Because tax subsidies are an effective way to promote business, but they don't always have the, the guardrails that are required. So a couple things. I mean, look, I don't have any any 
real insight into that because it's totally a, a federal government, I guess, purview thing. And in a lot of cases, they are competing with what Biden's doing down in states. In fact, I think the proponents would be able to tell you more, including you just have to look at Brea and what's going on in Cumbia Chance over the last couple of years where they were going to the feds when it comes to, you know, they're moving into green tech, what is available. What I will say is this, is that now that we're able to move forward, we would be, we're going to be absolutely advocating on behalf of proponents and not just for this industry, when it comes to anything that falls into their I, I guess the gamut of uh, you know decarbonization and green tech and everything else. We are going to advocate on behalf of you know our province and the people that are doing business here. Uh, but so far, it's been led by the proponents themselves in meetings with the federal government, whether it's the various ministers and bureaucrats. So we aren't you know technically a party to that, but we recognize the impact it has on the province. I appreciate the time this morning, Minister. Thank you. Thank you so much, Patty. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Andrew Parsons, the Minister for Industry, Energy, Technology. If we didn't cover something there, you want to put it in my email address or whatever the case may be, but there's always time to revisit. We will try to get each of the proponents on in short order as well to get down to some sp- region-specific questions if you're so inclined. We did indeed mention the Port of Argentia and Pattern Energy. They did not make it through. There's still a pathway forward, apparently. Let's see if Scott Penny, the CEO at the Port of Argentia, knows more about that. We'll hear from him after this. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Scott Penny, the CEO of the Port of Argentia. You're on the air. Hi, good morning, Penny. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? Good, thanks. So I've said a couple of times uh, today already that a little bit surprised that the port and pattern aren't in the move forward process because even the deputy prime minister pretty much said that uh, the quiet part out loud. Argentina's going to be at the forefront of all this. The minister did say there's still a pathway forward for pattern and the port. What, what is it? Do you know? Well, the pathway that he refers to is on phase two. Again, everything that we've been focused on, and that's what set the port of Argentia uh, different from everybody else and every other project, is that everything that we want to do right now in phase one is on private lands. So none of that's changed. It it has zero impact on our phase one uh, project moving forward. And so in terms of where they go, and when I say where they, where pattern goes uh, around phase two and, and navigating that path forward, I'll certainly leave that to them. But, you know, I think it's important to note that, as the minister stated in the media on multiple occasions now, uh, that uh, and more information will come as we're debriefed, that there is a path forward. And that's what's most important. So does this not take the wind out of the sails of yourselves in pattern then? God, no. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're so excited. I mean, this week has been, uh, you know, very exciting for us, obviously. Um, I, I think it's important to note, I mean, look, I, you've got to give credit to the to the province as well. I mean, they've stuck to their guns and they've they said, we're going to have an announcement by the end of August. They've done that. So, you know, we have to be excited now as a province. And it's, you know, it's great to see a new industry and the investment and jobs. And that's that's the most important part here. Um, and for us, you know, again, we're going to be focusing solely in on delivering what we believe uh, to be a project that is of the right size. It's uh, at the best port. It has strong community engagement and support. And, you know, we're very excited at what the future is going to bring. 
So if your potential project is part of phase two, does that mean that at the end of all of these consultations and environmental assessments that everyone will come out of the gate at the same time, or is there a difference because of the fact that you've been excluded from this next phase as per right. minister? Right. So we own the land. So we're, they'll have to go through an environmental assessment process. They won't have the 18-month, or sorry, pattern, or the Argentia Renewables Project won't have an 18-month window to negotiate and figure out the crown lands. That's a major benefit. So most of the proponents, I mean, everybody looked at the Port of Argentia for the reasons I described around being on private lands because we avoid the crown lands piece. That's what's always set our project apart. And so you're right, it won't, you know, we, once we get our environmental approval, um, you know, once that time runs up, we're ready to start to build. So we don't have to spend the next 18 months now, you know, negotiating and figure out the cost and the pricing of, you know, each of the, you know, parcels of land that we would want if we're in the crown land process. So that's what sets us apart from all the others. Which is going to be, I would imagine, quite important for pattern because it's not only the 18-month issue regarding uh, crown land and the crown land hole and 3.5% of market value that it would have to be paid. This is going to be an issue about getting people to build it because if these all happened around the same time, there's just no way we have the people to build it. So what kind of advantages does that offer to pattern because the first one moving is the first people that get the trades and the others will have to stand in line. Right, right. Well, that, that's a very, again... You know, over the last two years in our discussions with all of the proponents over the years looking at our agenda, one of the biggest benefits is that, you know, this is a heavy industrial site. We're very close to, you know, this, you know, the city. Uh, we're close to Conception Bay North, Southern Shore, Hollywood, all these areas that are, you know, have strong labor pools. Um, you know, we're here now, we're building a, a gravity structure to the West White Rose, and, you know, we're drawing on the labor pool that's in this area. Not to mention the fact that, you know, over the next number of years, you know, the, the province has agreed or will be winning the highway past Argentia and on towards Clarenville. So, you know, we're going to be in a very, I think, very attractive position for a labor pool, to be honest with you, Patty. I think it's important that, you know, what we're providing is a real transition um, of project work for the local employment. So, you know, you can go home every night if you wish. That's one of the big benefits of, of this region. Uh, and we have a very, very strong labor pool. And that's some of the things, but you're absolutely right. But let's not forget, I mean, we as a province and our labor, our labor forces have always stepped up, um, you know, and I, I see no difference now. There will be, you know, a strain on resources, absolutely. And it's important to get out of the gate first. And the fact that we're not involved in, in Crown Land's process into our Phase 1 project is an absolute game-changer. And I think that's why, you know, everyone is touting our project to be the first to export to hydrogen. I think, you know, the Deputy Prime Minister and, the, you know, local MPs, O'Regan and McDonald, that's why they came here. I mean, they see it, and it makes perfect sense. And the solid planning and detail behind the Argentia Renewables project uh, lays that out quite eloquently. Uh, very quickly before we have to go, so the port has received its first delivery of monopiles. Have you had, because of that, and obviously have established relationships with somebody for the usage of those monopiles, has that led to more conversation? Because there is global attention on these types of things. So th did the first delivery trigger more business? Well, prior, to, to be totally honest with you, Patty, and I said this to you before, even prior to the delivery, has triggered more business. 
We are inundated as uh, a laydown for all the components for the U.S. offshore wind market. And so we're trying to work. We have two, we're in discussions now with two major players around potential sites uh, here at the port for heavy laydown. You know, we're looking at blades. We're looking at what they call the transition pieces, cables. So we really are going to be a major player in that in that sector. And, you know, that's very, you know, very exciting for us. And you're right, we did get our first boat arrival on the 11th of August. And we've got one coming now. The second boat is scheduled to arrive on the 6th of August. And then the following one, I think, is going to come around the 10th or the 11th. Will be the third. So we'll have 12 of these massive monopiles up on our runway. And uh, it's, it's been very exciting to see that come to fruition. And uh, it's exciting, let me tell you. I appreciate the time as usual, Scott. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Patty. Have a good day. You too. All the best. Bye-bye. Scott Petty is the CEO of the Port of Argentia. Let's take a break, final break of the morning. When we come back, there's this curious, bizarre issue of uh, commercial licenses in the fishery being lost, taken over by who? What's happening? Ryan Clary from CNL right after this. Welcome back. Very quickly, there was a wedding ban and an engagement ring dropped in the parking lot at the Health Sciences Center. Someone found it, a good, honest person, and brought it into the security uh, office and the, uh, the security desk at the Health Sciences. So if you lost the rings, they're at security. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the executive director at CNL. That's Ryan Cleary. Ryan, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Do you and your listeners, thank you very much for taking the call and for teeing me up before the break. Yeah, no problem. This is quite odd, to be honest with you. So what exactly is going on with commercial licenses? Yes, Patty. For the information of uh, your listeners, the issue I'm calling about has to do with skippers, licensed fishermen, licensed fisherwomen uh, who may have lost control of their boat and commercial fishing licenses. The best way to explain this to you and your listeners, Patty, is to give you an example. So earlier this spring, CNL uh, was approached by an older fisherman, uh, a fisherman well-respected by his peers. The man spent his entire life on the water. He was a successful small boat fisherman. The fisherman approached me because he had... As you said in your intro, he had lost complete control of his fishing enterprise, and he lost it to a fish processor. The enterprise included his boat, it included his gear, and included his licenses, which includes snow crab, highly lucrative snow crab. When all was said and done, Patty, the fisherman and his family were left without a dime or a clue as to how it happened, how they lost control. What happened here is the fisherman had entered into a financial arrangement with a processor. I'm not going to name the processor. And between the jigs and the reels, when all was said and done, he was left with nothing. I can't get into much more detail than that, Patty, because DFO is investigating the case. I wrote the federal minister in June. I asked the department to investigate Joyce Murray, who was then the minister. Uh, She launched an investigation. I can tell you that DFO Newfoundland is, is also investigating similar cases. They're investigating this one and similar ones where inshore license holders may have lost control of their fishing enterprises. So, and, and the other thing, Patty, is DFO is aware that I'm making this public uh, appeal. The main takeaway from my call, Patty, is to encourage inshore enterprise owners to step forward if you are not in control of your boat or your licenses. If you are not in control, then contact DFO and have it investigated and make it right. Now, I can leave the email address for DFO's Conservation and Enforcement Division with Dave or enterprise owners and their families can contact me directly at uh, at CNL, and I'll give them the contact information. But, 
Yeah, because these email addresses are convoluted at the federal level. It's tn.licenses at dfo-mpo-gc.ca. I have it too, so I'll give it out for if anybody wants it. So when you talk about a commercial license, like I don't understand this from the get-go. There's the process to get a license, the process to transfer a license, the process to sell a license. Does this also include, you know, when you talk about the entirety of the enterprise, which is everything, it's your boat, it's your gear, the whole kit and caboodle. So when the li- the license issue that you're talking about, this is simply the license to fish, not everything to do with the other assets inside an enterprise, right? No, the, the, yeah, exactly right. These are commercial fishing licenses, and the enterprise, which includes the boat, includes the gear. DFO's owner-operator policy, that's what the policy that this comes down to, yeah. it requires license holders to fish the license themselves and to reap the rewards. The rationale is to promote small-scale fishermen, and it's to prevent large-scale larger companies from accumulating multiple licenses. The problem, Patty, and this is what it comes down to, is that companies have been accumulating inshore licenses or controlling controlling enterprises through financial or controlling agreements. Controlling agreements are illegal. There was a court case about that a few years ago. Yeah. But there's a fine line between a financial agreement and a controlling agreement. And, Patty, the last point I'll make is, is only two years ago, in 2021, the former president of the FFAW, Keith Sullivan, he said, to, I believe it was to a House of Commons uh, uh, Fisheries Committee investigating this, he said that the majority of some fishing fleets in this province are illegally owned by fish processing companies, and that's what this comes down to. Uh, there's a fine line between controlling agreements, financial agreements, inshore harvesters, license holders do agreements with processors, and between the jigs and the reels in a bunch of cases that are being investigated by DFO, the inshore harvester loses control, in this case, in the case I pointed out to DFO, of the licenses, including snow crab and the enterprise and the gear, the whole nine yards, and no clue as to how it really happened. There, there's, they have no paperwork. What's the fine line between a financial arrangement and a controlling agreement? Because no matter how you slice it, access is one thing, but it all boils down to the financial rewards that anybody's able to reap with a license. Oh, boy, I tell you what, Patty, that's a great question. The, the, line, but the bottom line is the owner-operator is supposed to have control, control of fishing period. Of course, they don't with the uh, trip limits and, and fishing schedules and the whole line, nine yards. But the owner-operator is supposed to have control of their license, uh, their fishing, and their enterprise. But in too many cases, and owner-operators who are listening to the show, Patty, they know what I'm, they know what I'm talking about. They know that this is right. In too many cases, that's, that hasn't happened. The, the, the processor has control. And that needs to be gotten to the bottom of. Sure. Uh, it's a wonder that these fine lines weren't adjudicated in the courts when that legal case was defined, was determined. And it was quite clear about the legality of it or the illegality of it. And, in fact, one of the named litigants in that case was a, lab- a Labrador fisherman. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to chase this a little further and try to wrap my mind around it in full. But I'll give you a chance to wrap it up, Brian, before we run out of time. Well, um, you're right, Patty. The DFO has also been circulating a random, uh, it's a random uh, questionnaire, but it's mandatory. And they've been doing it in recent months to, to commercial license holders to learn of any and all financial arrangements that may jeopardize the owner-operator um, uh, principle. So, so DFO has been trying to get to the bottom of this since that court case. But again, what this comes down to is my main message to owner-operators, to inshore enterprise owners. If you have lost control of your enterprise, if you have lost control of your fishing licenses, contact CNL or DFO, have it investigated, and have it made right, because you're supposed to be in control. 
And that's my message, Patty. I appreciate allowing to express it. I appreciate the time. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Patty. All right, there you go. Whoa. All right, uh, good show today. Big thanks to all hands supporting the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on BOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.